Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is July 1st, 2015. It's Wednesday. It's about eight minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time, which means if we're live when you are, then that's uh, your time to participate, 800-932-1980. That is toll-free. You can call in. You will get on the air. Or, if you choose not to do that, you can participate by just going to the chat room. It's located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Either one will get you there, and all you got to do is find the chat link. It's the one that says, uh, well, the uh, chat, and you click on it. 
easy instructions. You're in there and you can chat away with the other folks who are talking about what Weenie Fireworks Oregon has, which uh, I wouldn't know. You know, I never go into those tents. I don't buy fireworks uh, from from the uh, the tent people selling fireworks. Uh, you know, I've always, <clears throat> since I moved here, always viewed shooting off explosive fireworks in the middle of July a real bad idea where I live. Hey, I like things blowing up as much as anybody. I just don't like things going on fire and staying on fire for the next two months. And that's what happens when stupid people play with things that go boom. Okay, they end up lighting the forests on fire. They burn for months and choke everybody here in the whole state. You know, they. I as far as I'm concerned, you know what? Hey, uh, do it in the winter time. I will. Hey, you know, honestly, if I was ruler of Oregon, I'd say, hey, no fireworks. No fireworks all summer long, man. I catch you with fi- shooting off fireworks, you're going to jail. Yeah. And and people like, well, we're responsible. Okay, yeah. Unless you're on a lake, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. I mean, people back east, it's not, as a matter of fact, there's some people, I'm not sure, I think Indiana's been getting tons of rain. I'm sure it's difficult for you to imagine. But we are so dry here that, man, you, you could put a, you could throw a cigarette outside the window and burn the forest down, okay? That's how dry it is here, man. It's, it's, it's crazy for people to be shooting off fireworks. And for what? What, to, to demonstrate your freedom? Give me a break. Good golly, man. Anyway, it is Wednesday, and that means we've got Melissa Roxanne on as co-host. We'll see if Melissa is technically together. Welcome, Melissa. I'm all apart. Technically all apart. Jigsaw puzzle. (laughs) Again? Still? (laughs) No. So you actually have everything working? Uh huh. Oh, good. Except for my air conditioning. Yeah, which is off. It's 100 degrees here. According to what they say, it was 117 at our place outside today. That's the hottest, I think. Well, right this second, right here, uh, my temperatures, as a matter of fact, I'm opening that because what my temperature says is 90 outside and it's 103 in here. So uh, It's 85 or so. You know, usually that's opposite. Usually it's hotter outside and cooler in here, but... Uh, the sun. Probably a hundred plus in the house. Anyway, so uh, I guess I'll let you go first. I was looking as for always. that article that I read in the paper. Uh, okay. When we were at Dollar Tree a few weeks back. <laughs> okay. I've... Because they were doing everything they could to stop marijuana being grown here. Oh, oh, in Medford, even yeah. though it's legal. Now, well, in the city limits of Medford, in the city of Medford, clarify. Yeah, they were trying to, you know, they were trying to shoot it down any way they could, you know, and say, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't grow it in the city limits and all this stuff. But anyway, I haven't been able to find that article, unfortunately. But here are 10 things you should know about Oregon's new pot law, they're saying. Okay. And so it is 
And yeah. what, that would go into effect today? I'm pretty sure, yeah, today, to July 1st, today, yeah, it did. Uh, they were giving away free stuff, it's, you know, I found out, I just found out. Darn, <laughs> um, and I was at the post office, <laughs> and I didn't see anybody giving away anything uh, for free, because, hey, people giving away free anything, <laughs> I usually get in line, but, uh, you know. But anyway, so you must be 21 to use or grow marijuana. Got it covered. You can grow up to four plants per residence, but they must be kept out of public view. Right. You can possess up to eight ounces inside your home and one ounce outside your home. See, now that's pretty reasonable, man. One ounce is enough to roll about 40 cigarette-sized joints, they claim. (laughs) Really? Is that all? Well, yeah, uh, okay, cigarette-sized joints, you know, maybe, but... uh... Uh, you can use marijuana only in your home or on other private property. Public use is illegal. Okay. But they say you can have it outside your home. Does that mean your vehicle is okay? Yeah, in your vehicle, on your person, only one ounce. You so know, you if can't you're going use from it. well, if I'm going from my house to your house, I can bring my ounce of weed with me. You um, know, but I can't smoke it while I'm well. Now, see, well, I can't smoke it. I'm pretty sure I can't smoke it in the car because. Uh, now, you might say, well, what if you're not driving? But I think they consider that in public. Because, you know, in your car, you have no expectation. They don't really address of, about outside use. They, well, just, they just say said you can have an ounce on a pro- outside your home. They don't say about, you know, using it. Well, so. they did just say you can't use it except on a private residence. And that means that, Okay, you other know, pro- private property. Yeah, meaning um, that you can go from, okay, you want to... Oh, we're going to go to our buddy's house over in Ashland or somewhere, right? Mm. You yeah, can, like we would do that. You can, bro, you can bring an ounce with you. Right. But you can't smoke it along the way, okay? You can smoke it once you get to his house. And uh, that's per household. This is all per household. Right. Uh, you, can, you can share or give away pot. It does say public use is illegal, okay? You can share or give away pot, but you can't sell it. Recreational marijuana sales won't be legal until the Oregon Liquor Control Commission starts licensing retail outlets in January 2016. Huh. Driving under the influence of marijuana is still illegal. Police departments will use drug recognition experts to determine whether drivers are impaired. And that's the bad part because... It shows up and stays in your system for up to 30 days or so. Yeah, but they just said they're not using, you know, breathalyzers or blood tests. What they're going to do is they're going to use drug recognition experts. We'll see. Which isn't, well, that's, is that what it says? That's what I just heard you say. Read it again, please. That's what they said. Does that mean what? Say it again. Read it again, please, so we're all clear. Please. Well, departments will use drug recognition experts to determine whether a driver is impaired. Right. Now, that's the thing about the Oregon uh, DUI laws, okay? The DUI laws are not, okay, the I in DUI, people presume it means intoxicated or intoxication, right? It does not. It means impairment. Right. And in Oregon... You can, and I'm telling you, you know, this is a really bad state this way because mad mothers have gone insane up, you know, in in Salem. I think it really stands for that, the acronym. What? Driving under the influence or driving while intoxicated. That's what I think it stands for. Well, they, they driving under impairment. 
But really, it's impairment. It is. And uh, they have people they say have been trained. Okay? They've been trained mm. to look in your eyes, to look in your... And you know what? Really... It so isn't. it's their, their, you know, uh, sure. can you, it's crazy. Well, the so thing is. they say so you are, that's what they're basing it pretty on. Pretty close, but, you know, also to be fair, uh, you don't have to be that much of an expert to see if somebody's stoned. There's people that act stoned when they're not, you know, like. Well, then they shouldn't be just, driving cars anyway, because if they're acting stoned. people that can act you know. perfectly, you know, straight when they are, so. Uh, anyway, whatever. It's not how you're acting. It's how you look. You know, there's certain things like how fast your pupils dilate. You have no control over that, okay? But when you're stoned, they, uh, they it's different than when you're not. And, you know, I mean, these guys are trained these little physical things that you can't control because you can act. You know, lots of people can act absolutely, you know, sober when they're completely drunk. And, you know, and same goes with being stoned. But the thing is, there are some automatic responses your body has that you got no control well, over. Well, there's going to be a lot of court battles, obviously, over this stuff. Well, no, there isn't, because they do the same thing with uh, with alcohol. You know, everybody assumes that everybody who, who gets a, a DUI conviction has a blood alcohol breathalyzer test behind them, right? That's not no, true. No, they do that sobriety test where they make you walk and stuff. Right, and they the do line. the same thing, and then they say you were impaired. We don't have to prove you were intoxicated. You were impaired. And they can charge you. And it's in their best interest to always say you're impaired, even if you're not. So, you know. Well, and the thing is, there's harsh, harsh, harsh uh, punishments for it and uh, for D, for you know so, alcohol yeah and for this yeah they're so, both DUIs and, and they, they both uh, you know the big thing pharma is drugs too they want for anything man I mean if if you're driving down the road eating a sandwich and talking on your cell phone two hundred fifty dollars yeah I could pull you over and in theory charge you with driving while impaired because I heard a, an overheard a lady at the vet saying that like a long time ago. She mm-hmm. said she got a ticket for using her cell phone that was two hundred and fifty dollars. Right, and, she's and that's like, and they're just revenue, you know, revenue well, cops. Yeah, well, it. duh. I mean, but the thing is, see, <laughs> that cop could have said, "Oh, okay, you know," and that was because, okay, well, you're just, uh, you know, I just saw you talking on your cell phone, mm-hmm. and that's a crime. Well, it's mm-hmm. an infraction, right? Yeah. And you better wear a seatbelt, even if you're going to block. But now don't listen, forget. But now listen, if you're on your cell phone and you're swerving all over the road, a cop could pull you over and charge you with driving while impaired and make it stick because you don't have to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol to be, reckless driving. to be impaired, okay? Your talking on that cell phone was impairing your ability to drive. Or careless driving. You know, there's lots of different ways they can do you when they, uh, you know, pull you over. That's, you know, that's just the way it is. And so, you know, hey, now in Oregon, everything's good, but you can bet the cops are going to be looking mm-hmm. real close in your eyes to see if you're stoned. So if you're stoned, uh, best stay out the car, at least out of the driver's seat. 
Anyway, uh, you can't legally take marijuana over state lines, even to Washington, where it's legal. You can't sell marijuana to minors. You <laughs> might face a felony charge. Unless you're George Bu- uh, Jeb Bush. If you do. Jeb Bush, you can. Or you could fly it into Mena with Barry Seals and kill some kids on the train. You know, kill some kids, place them on the train tracks. Like, you know, they were stoned. Tell everybody they were stoned on marijuana. Well, let's say ra- impaired. Ride, they were you know, impaired. Run over them or something. And, uh, well, they were impaired. Yeah, and then you can make a movie about it all and leave out all those parts with Tom Cruise playing Barry Seal. Well, sure. Why would they say that? So, anything else about so any any anything else people need to know uh, about? You can it? make marijuana edibles at home or receive them as gifts, but you can only consume them in private. Like in a closet or something. <laughs> what does that mean in private? Like in a private resident, or do I, I have to, like, be out of sight of I everybody? I don't know. There? They don't specify. <laughs> I mean, they just say in private, whatever that means. Hmm. I guess not in a public place, you know, obviously. Pot is still considered a Schedule One illicit drug under federal law, meaning it's still banned on college campuses and other facilities that receive federal funding. And then... Oregon legalizes pot this week, but thanks to the Liquor Control Commission, you can't buy it. Excited about the new law? There's a catch. While marijuana legalization activists are cheering on the states into pot prohibition this Wednesday, the way the law is set up has many shaking their heads. Thanks to the 56% of Oregon residents voting in favor of Measure 91 last November, come this Wednesday, which is today, all residents 21 and older will legally be allowed to possess and use recreational reefer. There is, however, a catch. No one can sell it or buy it. If Oregonians want to partake in the pot, they will have to either have it given to them as a gift or buy it on the illegal black market. The reason why it is currently not for sale is that Measure 91 gave control of this plant to the Oregon Liquor Control Commission. The OLCC has the authority to tax, license, and regulate recreational marijuana grown, sold, or processed for commercial purposes. The OLCC won't even begin taking applications for commercial growers until January of next year, which is 2016. That means that pot shops aren't to be expected until the fall of 2016. And I read they were going to have a 25% tax on it. I don't know how true, but... Um, According to the Statesman Journal, this disconnect between adults being able to use the plant recreational but not being able to legally buy it has left many shaking their heads, and it gets a little complicated federally as well. The federal government still considers possession and cultivation of pot against the law. Possession typically carries a misdemeanor charge and fines ranging from $1,000 to $5,000. Growing it is a felony, punishable by prison terms and penalties ranging from $250,000 to $1 million. Well, one thing, you know, that, that may be true of federal law, but okay... Here you are within the state of Oregon, and you really got to ask, what's your jurisdiction? What's the federal nexus? I don't give a damn if it's against federal law. I'm not on federal property. I'm not a federal person. I, where's your federal nexus? You know, people need to start making them, and, and this goes for in states that, you know, don't necessarily have it, you know, legal pot. Because, see, the big hammer is the federal government. Sure, you know, okay, there's a few states like Texas, okay? Texas is a really big, you know, uh, you know, they're real harsh on marijuana. 
Yeah, they claim they're giving out free marijuana today in the hundred degree plus heat. Well, free, so. you know, from what you li- what you just read, free is okay. You can give it away. You just can't sell it. Yeah. You know, so there you go. And somebody in the chat room says, "I think pot is already GMO weaponized." <laughs> you know, really, I, I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing. Uh, oh, but I can say this. There won't be such a thing here in Jackson County, Oregon, because GMOs are illegal here. Yeah, that's true. So they'll have to bring it in some from and some other ca- uh, county, and I don't think that's necessary, seeing as how I'm surrounded by, by growers. Um, okay? And they are trying to, I think somebody did get the go-ahead to grow hemp here, right, Frank? Up north, I think they did. You know, big, big industrial hemp uh, uh, grower, which is not, this is not get high marijuana. Same, same basic, you know, plant, but not, you're not getting high off of hemp. Yeah, so I put some photos in the chat room of Mm -hmm. them, you know, a few little, like they're giving away the free marijuana in Ashland and, I don't know, Medford or somewhere. Um, I haven't even looked at them. Well, yeah, you know, and, and somebody makes a good thing. Why aren't we produ- Why aren't we pursuing industrial hemp? Well, industrial hemp used to be a major mm-hmm. product in the United States. As a matter of fact, a lot of the so-called founding yep. fathers grew. They were hemp farmers, and hemp yep. made clothes. It made paper. Them. It made rope. All kinds of things, and mainly they used to pay farmers to grow it. And mainly, <laughs> people go, "Well, it was big oil." Uh, actually. It was big cotton. Okay? That that was the major mm-hmm. push behind killing hemp. Industrial hemp yeah. was big cotton. It wasn't big oil at the time. Not to say that it wouldn't be now because, you know, with all their synthetic ropes they make, nothing's really, very little rope is made out of cotton. People don't use that much rope anyway anymore. It used to be used a lot more. But, you know, clothing is a synthetic made out of oil, which I hope people understand that. If, you're, if your clothing doesn't say, like, uh, all, you know, cotton. Or, and if it's cotton, it's GMO cotton. Well, Unless that's it's true. organic. And, it, and that's going to be pretty much unheard of. I mean, unless you go to some specialty store or get it online or something and pay a lot of money. And that goes for a lot of things, even uh, women's products. Yeah, well, I think I'd rather Um, have a GMO cotton than a, you know, petroleum oil product. Yeah, and then all the other clothing, you know, unless it is, like you say, all cotton, which is going to be GMO, it's going to be petroleum byproduct. Yeah, so now nowadays I could see where, you know, okay, it would probably be big oil and cotton that wouldn't want hemp. And they've kept it out for a very long time. But the thing is, uh, hemp is a very durable clothing when it's made, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the clothing. I don't well, know much they make about, a ton of stuff out. you know, I know paper, and uh, the paper doesn't, uh, you know, the paper lasts longer and all that. So, you know, and that, that you know, whatever industry is out there competing isn't going to want that because... Our economy is not based on things lasting a long time and being durable. No. Okay? We live in a disposable... Planned obsolescence. Yeah, we live in a disposable society. Everything is throwaway. It doesn't last long, and it's not Unless that much. You just go buy something else. And you do keep old parts, and you get you know vehicles like the one you drive for the parts and things like that. And there are smart people that still do that. 
But, yeah, the stuff they make nowadays doesn't last like it used to, that's for sure. Well, and there's some smart people, but, you know, smart people may live in the wrong state. Because if you live in, say, California, uh, you don't get to have an old car with old parts and you just keep it running and keep it fixed. Can't you say it's yard arts or something? Yeah, as long as you don't take it on the road. Uh, you know, but the thing is, California has has... California is the worst place on the planet, okay, in my opinion. Now, mm, now I New, don't know that I agree with that. Now, New Jersey might be pretty close to that because they have some restrictive laws, too. They want old cars off the road, and they want them off the road. They say for safety, but that's not it. They want it off the road because they want you buying a new car. That's why they want them off the road, because they want you to buy a new car, and they want you to buy a new car every three years. Mm. In Georgia, from what I've been told by my family, on your birthday, you have to get, you know, your tag, and it costs like $500. Yeah, that's crazy. Happy birthday. Yeah. Happy you're not driving anymore. And uh, in Washington State, it says their liquor control board threw a wrench into the gears of marijuana regulation, too. Seattle City Attorney along with the Liquor Control Board, are attempting to stamp out the medical marijuana industry, which has existed in the state since the 90s. With dollar signs in their eyes, the regulars want to tax mar- medical marijuana at the same grueling 44% sin tax as recreational pot. Now they're saying 44%. I had well, that's 25. That's, you see, you're mixing things up, okay? Okay. You were talking about Oregon before. Yeah. Now you're talking about Washington. Well, maybe once they see what Washington's doing, they will follow. Maybe. In turn, they will be denying those who can barely afford to pay for their beneficial medicine now all hope of buying it in the future. Huh. Well, I don't know. I don't really care either. Uh, anyway. I find it interesting, you know, to be surrounded by, you know, legal marijuana growers. I think it's kind of neat, actually. I I, <laughs> I I don't mind it at all. Uh, but it really doesn't make any difference to me. It never has. And it never will. You know, and, anyway. you know, so that's that's the thing. You know, I'll do what I, I'll do what I please when it comes to recreating. And, uh, you know, yeah, some places they've passed laws you can't even, like, smoke a cigarette in your own place. Not that I'm for smoking cigarettes, but just saying. Some places well, uh, they, they as, won't allow you. As a matter of fact, uh, de Blasio, the mayor in New York City, is pressuring, just the headline, is pressuring um, uh, landlords to forbid smoking. Within their rental units. In other words, you want to rent a house from a guy, uh, okay, but you're not allowed to smoke. And if you're a smoker, you, I'm not renting it to you, and that's going to be, that's okay. That's not discrimination or anything. It's okay. But if you say, hey, if you're a homo, I'm not renting it to you, oh boy, now it's a big deal. You know, I mean, honestly, and I use that as an example, and some of you may go, well, that's not the same. No, it's exactly the same. Because you say, well, smoking, why? Why? It's legal. Well, yes, it's legal, but it's harmful. It's dangerous, and secondhand smoke hurts other people. Okay, fine. So it's a public health hazard, and you're saying, well, so don't rent to these people because it's a public health hazard. I get it. What about the homos? See, they're a public health hazard also. 
They have more disease. They, as a matter of fact, not only a public health hazard, an economic hazard. Because not only do they spread disease to other you know, people like when they serve their food to them. No, 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 no. Not just that. They also have more health issues, which cost more money, which guess what? Now with Obamacare, everybody's insured, so all the homos are going to be going to the hospital all the time because they already go to the hospital all the time because they're always sick. You know, this is a bad, you know, a, a bad deal, but they're protected, see? And th- this is the whole thing. It's like they're a protected class. Sorry. Oh, uh, wait a minute. Uh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Title of nobility. Well, that and also what happened to uh, we're all equal under the law. Equal protection under the law. What happened to that? I guess that's gone. I don't think we ever had it. Well, we probably never did, but we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay right where you're at. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. 
You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still July 1st, 2015, still Wednesday. Now it's 841 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. It's cooling down a little bit. Well, you know, most of you would be uh, panting, you know, if it was this hot, but it's cooling down here. You know, it was like 113 or 14 or some crazy something crazy today and now it's only 99 in here and uh it says it's 88 outside so we are on the way down here we're cooling but anyway uh so you can uh if we are live where you're at right now and you're not listening to a replay you can call in 800-932-1980 you can go to the chat room which is located at our website theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com and uh, you can also instant message me off of Yahoo, Instant Messenger, AVRN, Talk is the screen name. It's Wednesday. We've got Melissa Roxanne with us as co-host. Welcome back, Melissa. Thank you. Well, as you can see, nobody in the room guessed either one of the songs. Can you believe it? Oh, really? Who was it? You didn't guess? Mm-mm. Well, the first song was Short Fat Fanny. Was the name of the song. <laughs> that reminds me of a Queen song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, nanny. Uh, what was she? She was a uh, naughty nanny. Big fat fanny. Big fat na- fanny, the naughty nanny. That's right. And uh, well, this was just short fat fanny, probably a cousin. Uh, you know, a uh, relative. He mentioned Blueberry Hill too in that song. Oh, he mentioned a lot of. Uh, if you listen to it, you know, he mentioned a lot of things that, uh, uh, other songs, you know, that had been done. Kind of cool. Anyway, it was Larry Williams. And, uh, the hmm. second song there was a remake of a Beatles song, Hard Day's Night. And, a very popular, famous band, The Knack. Okay. Or, as I like Ma to Sharona. say, The Knack. You love that song, Sharona. <laughs> Don't get me started, all right? You know, I mean... I don't know why y'all said what you did. <laughs> I like that song. Oh, man, in high school, every time that song mm. would come on, every every boy in the whole cafeteria, when they got to that part... Would say a... What? Would say something that little kids shouldn't hear. Well, yeah, I'm not going to actually say it, but... Uh, a lot of people. It was a male body part. Yeah. I don't know what it had to do with my Sharona, though. It sounds the same. It does not. Yeah, it does. Well, I'm not going to sing it. And Although, because, you know, on the Wonder Years, they called one of the kids on there, or actually, the big brother called the little brother that term for his nickname. Oh, that's nice. A shortened version of it. Kevin. Anyhow... Okay, now that, uh, and I saw that link you posted about it, and I read about Griff, Griffin Creek, and, you know, uh, this is one of these examples where the Male Tribune, which is our rag here, which is nothing but a propaganda piece of garbage, uh, and mm-hmm. I hope somebody from the Male Tribune is listening because you suck, and I you read always Rupert have. Murdoch on, but... Well, one of his shell companies do, and, uh, you know, the thing is, though, they... They tend to take, you see, they are anti-marijuana. Yes. And they look for stories to make it Mm -hmm. look like it's a horrible, terrible thing that's destroying and killing us all. Yes. 
But when you actually you read the headline, and that's what it says to you, and if that's as far as you go, you're going to get an opinion that is wrong. It's based on just the headline, which has nothing to do with the story, really. Because the story is about somebody who's a moron, okay? Okay, in this county, when, you're, when you have your property, and you're on a stream, okay? Mm-hmm. You can't do anything within 50 feet of that stream. It's called a setback. As a matter of fact, the same applies where I live. Okay? They have setbacks to your neighbor's property. Right? You cannot build a permanent structure. On the sides, it's 20 feet. On the front, it's 30 feet. And the rear is 20 feet also. Those are setbacks. Now, when you have a stream or a creek, it's 50 feet. You can't do anything, okay? Because mm-hmm. they don't want you screwing up the stream, right? right. Which I, I'm good with that. Me too. And, hey, by the way, the Rogue River, if you live on the Rogue River, that, that spendy property, mm-hmm. it's 75 feet. So you better have a lot of land because, uh, you know, 75 feet of it is you're not going to be able to use it. You've got to stay 75 feet away from the river. Now, what these guys did was they started tearing down trees and, and ripping down foliage so they could grow more weed, and they just happened to burn their properties on a creek, Griffin Creek. And uh, the neighbors are complaining, and they're believing no citations have been issued yet because they've got to investigate. Because really what they've got to do is they've got to go and they've got to measure. You know, did you violate the setback? And if you did violate the setback... They're going to come down on you. But they would have come down on you for anything if you, if you violated that setback. Mm-hmm. I don't care. You build a house. You know, hey, if you yeah. were within the setback, they're going to come down on you, and they're going to tell you, tear down that house. They're not going to let you do that. You know? So it's, it's not what the headline describes when you actually read the article what's going on here. Somebody got a little carried away and just was you know, ripping up their property, figuring they could do what they wanted, and they either they weren't aware or they didn't care about the setbacks. And they may or may not have violated them because there's mm-hmm. been no citations issued. They've got this huge story and this nasty headline, and there hasn't even been a citation yeah. issued. It says that Griffin Creek is considered an essential salmon habitat, and any work in the stream would require a permit from... Department of State lands. Yeah. Yeah, you can get around the setbacks if you really got an idea to do something, but they're going to have to give you permission because they're not going to let you just and do whatever you want. And they say that they're investigating, as they're looking into it, which could result in a Class A misdemeanor that carries a penalty of up to $6,250 in a year in jail. Yeah, but the guy I've never said. seen that kind of fine imposed, he said. Yeah. But he said they're more concerned about... The, the environmental issues yeah. when they call it larger cartels growing in northeast Oregon have been uncovered. Um, and the environmental issues with these larger growths have involved the use of fertilizers and pesticides at Washington nearby streams. Well, and I, you know what? If somebody's using pesticides and all that, yeah. I say arrest them and take them to prison. And fertilizers. Prison. Take them to prison. I don't want that crap. You know, I don't want, I don't even want weed grown with that crap. But I certainly don't want it flowing down the rivers. 
And it says, you know, a lot of people are complaining throughout the county. Code enforcement officers are responding to complaints from neighbors, many of whom object to pot gardens next door. Where in the paper they did say, you know, if somebody has a problem with the smell, et cetera, they can object and complain and this and that. And they're trying, you know, it's like they're trying to do what they can to keep it from being grown in city limits. I mean, in the paper they make it seem that way. Well, yeah, but the thing is, see, what people's main problem is because honestly they've been brainwashed when i go down the road marijuana smells good and i don't mean smoking it or anything i mean just a nice big field of marijuana when you go buy it it smells good there's nobody there's one in a hundred people would say no i don't like that smell that smells terrible you know, maybe some old lady who wears that nasty perfume that you got to run away from when you walk near her at Walmart or something. It's might, not just women. You know. Well, yeah, okay, but anyway. A lot of guys have a problem with it, too. Really? Mm-hmm. Anyhow, the thing is, what I believe most people's problem is, is the fact that the... Or- now, you read before where they say, look, you can grow four plants, but it can't be in public view. Yes. Well... Even if you're a commercial grower, it can't be in public view. That's why you see all these fences. Mm-hmm. But there's no stipulation on what the fence has to be made out or look like or anything no, like that. People have been putting up black plastic, for right. instance, as a temporary measure. Now, that is offensive. If you put up an eight-foot black plastic fence next to my house, I might say, you know what, man? You want to grow weed? Put up a nice fence, would you? This this black plastic piece of crap sucks. You know? Hey, what do you say I sit here with a lighter and just uh, light that bunch of plastic on fire, huh? Some neighbor of ours does burn plastic quite often here. Well, you that's true. Smell it all over. You know, so, uh, you know, part of this problem is actually the state with their, you know, uh, ooh, not, you know, can't be in public view. You know, like marijuana is some hideous, ugly plant or something, and it isn't. You know, they're, they're, they're just... But, you know, it's brand new, and they'll get over it, and it'll um, it'll go whatever way it goes, you know. But, like I said, I think it's interesting. Uh, I like the idea. It should have never been illegal in the first you place. You have to have but... permits to have a greenhouse, too, they say. Yeah, they Unpermitted say. Unpermitted greenhouses. Could be resolved by seeking a permit or removing the greenhouse. Sure, or just telling them to screw off. You don't own my property. Then they say here, if non-compliance continues, a two hundred fifty dollar fine a day could be levied each day up to ten grand. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, they're going to get themselves into a, a into a situation where if they start coming down on people like that, violence will occur. And violence should occur if they keep that up. And they say that they've heard the legalization of marijuana in Oregon has attracted national interest similar to the gold rush. It feels as if it's like the green rush right now. People are coming from everywhere around the country. Well, what do you expect? Although in California, I know there's a place there where pretty much everybody that lives there grows it. Where? Somewhere in California. I forget the... Humboldt County? Maybe. I think I it was, is. I was in a good... No, I was in a thrift store one day. It wasn't Goodwill. But they had televisions on, and they had a you know show on about it, and I stood there and watched it. <laughs> and it was... Yeah, I think it's Humboldt County, but, uh, you know, and, and I... that's See, now, that's one thing that 
really could be put in, uh, you know, that this is easily stopped. You know, you can't grow marijuana in, in, you know, Oregon unless you've lived here for a year. You just make it a residency uh, issue. Say, look, you know, you're going to have to live here for a year. It doesn't matter if you just ran out and you know, ran up to Oregon and bought a piece of property for ten grand, and uh, now you're now you're going to grow pot on it. No, not unless you've lived here for a year. You know, you're not just going to come. Of, I haven't not, heard of that. No, no, they're not doing it. That's why they have the problem. See, what mm-hmm. we have is a, is a situation of basically carpetbaggers. Yeah. You know, uh, I see a lot of California plates coming up and down this hill, and I don't like it. They come here because we don't have sales tax, too. Yeah, they don't come, come up. To... They don't come up this hill because we don't have sales no, tax. No, I'm I'm saying to where I know what they're doing up on this hill, and I don't like them being up. here. I I don't like seeing California plates anywhere near me. I don't even like seeing them in mm. Medford. Mm, what? You have a friend that lives there. Well, yeah, I California tell plates? Yeah, I tell them how badly I don't like California almost every day. <laughs> and no, he doesn't have California plates as a matter of okay. fact. He has Alaska plates because okay. he's got some sort of thing going <laughs> okay, on. Okay, okay, okay. I don't want to know anymore. Yeah, well. But anyway. So, enough about that, huh? Yes. What yes, else you yes. got? You want me to go again? Yeah, I got the same old crap on my oh, well, on my thing as I always do, you know. There, I mean, there was the whole eulogy of the usurper at South Carolina funeral of that state senator that they claim, you know, that Patsy killed or whoever. Yeah. And uh, it made me sick. I read the entire thing shortly thereafter, you know, when he he read it. Of course, he didn't write it. We all know that, but <laughs> it was just sick, sick, sickening. And, um, you know, he did the whole race card thing, of course, and, you know, oh, all of a sudden, everybody was calling him Reverend Obama, the two people that spoke after he did, and they were applauding him, and he acted like he was a preacher, you know, all the stuff he said, and um, he was saying things like, he embodied the idea that our Christian faith, although he claimed to be a Muslim, remember? demands deeds and not just words that the sweet hour of prayer actually lasts the whole week long and they got they applauded after that that to put our faith in action is more than individual salvation it's about our collective salvation that to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and house the homeless is not just a call for isolated charity but the imperative of a just society meanwhile you've got the TPP going on and NAFTA and CAFTA well, what he and just, all this junk okay if you listen to what you just said yeah. very carefully, what that is yeah, is the com- it's the communist manifesto. I know, I know. You know, and, and then, there are some moronic yeah, antichrist churches in this country that will tell you, "Oh, Jesus was a communist." Yeah. And then he follows that up with the next sentence: "says What a good man." Sometimes I think that's just the best thing to hope for when you're eulogized after all the words and recitations and resumes are read to just say someone was a good man. Yet the Bible tells us there is no good men. 
Even Jesus said, yeah, well, only Bob, the Father What makes you think Obama or anybody writing his exactly. speeches would know anything well, about what the Bible says? people said. in, but those that don't know that, you know, they applaud and think that's wonderful to say, you know, which they did applaud it. Yeah, well, Obama doesn't have to worry. Nobody's going to be saying that about him at his eulogy. And remember when he was talking about, you know, gun-toting, Bible-carrying people and, and putting them down, and he's mocked the Bible so many times, and he's he's quoted things that sound very blasphemous. I mean, he sat up there and said things from the Bible that are very blasphemous, you know. And now he's acting like he's this big Christian. He is such a chameleon, you know. I mean... You mean a fake, a phony, oh, a liar? Total, total. And he carries that monkey charm around with him, a false god monkey charm. And then he's got this statue, a Hindu statue of a false god that was given to him as well when he was campaigning. Oh, and he, he said the sweetest that. sound is that nasty yeah. noise that coming out of the mosque, yeah. that that's the sweetest sound ever, you know. And he talked about praying, you know, as many times a day as they pray in Muslim countries, whatever it is, five times a day or something. Yeah. Um, and he said you don't have to be of high station to be a good man, uh, you know, yet. Well, he's living proof of that. <laughs> And then he goes on and on, and he talks about the race thing and all this. And he, t he talked about how, over the course of centuries, black churches served as hush harbors where slaves could worship in safety, praise houses where the free, their free descendants could gather, and shout hallelujah, they applauded, rest stops for the weary along the Underground Railroad, bunkers for the foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement. They have been and continue to be community centers where we organize. Uh, community organizer, hello, mm -hmm. for jobs and justice, places of scholarship and network, places where children are loved and fed and kept out of harm's way and told that they are beautiful and smart, applause, and taught that they matter, applause. That's what happens in church. That's what a black church means, our beating heart, the place where our dignity as a people is inviolate, where there's no better example of this tradition than Mother Emmanuel, applause, a church built by blacks seeking liberty, burned to the ground because it's founder sought to end slavery only to rise up again a phoenix which is lucifer by the way from these ashes applause and he goes on and on about jim crow martin luther king jr marches you know that this guy and all these people were protesters and good for them but hey it's not good if you protest the government it's not good if you protest you know the tpp and all the stuff no no they like. have they have uh free speech zones behind cages for you yeah and uh, so it just goes on and on. You should read it if you have. No, I, I got better things to do. I, you know, what Obama has to say about much of anything doesn't matter to me anymore. And he does the gun thing, of course. He's well, got to bring he all does. that up. You know, but what he has to say really doesn't matter to me anymore because I don't care what he says anymore. Uh, just like the Supreme Court, I don't care what they say anymore. And then yeah. he starts singing Amazing Grace, and right. he names everybody that was killed, and he says, they found grace, they found grace, their name, they found grace, and he starts singing Amazing Grace. Yeah, unless they were saved, you know, unless they weren't saved, then they're burning in hell, you know. But, hey, you know, Obama can say whatever he wants. Everything he says is a lie, so it doesn't really matter. But we are out of time, got to go. And, uh, I don't know, I think I'm going to try to find a pool to jump into somewhere. Thanks for being on, Melissa. Thank you. All righty. Thanks for listening, folks.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Secret reports fell on the desks of America's spy masters. Overwhelmed, the analysts missed clear signs of impending disaster. The intelligence bureaucracies distrusted each other and didn't share information that could have averted an unprecedented attack on the United States. This was not 9-11. It was the 7th of December, 1941. On that day at Pearl Harbor, 2,400 lives were lost. It was a devastating defeat that changed America forever. Battleship Arizona was completely destroyed and four others severely damaged. For many years, controversy has surrounded the subject of Pearl Harbor, the event that finally propelled the reluctant nation into the Second World War. But was the surprise attack really a surprise? Who knew about it and who failed to avert it? We knew what Japan was up to. We knew it before Pearl Harbor. We knew it all through the war. From the outset, some experts asserted that the highest echelons of the administration of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt knew of the Japanese plans in advance and did nothing to stop them. As new evidence emerges, the charges persist, giving rise to fierce debate. FDR, it seems, obviously wanted the Japanese to surprise and utterly destroy Pearl Harbor. What motive could Roosevelt possibly have had for doing such a thing? There's not a drop of evidence. There's speculation, accusation, allegation, and I think sort of dreaming. What we have here is a cover-up and a conspiracy on the part of the FDR administration. Did President Roosevelt know in advance and has a government-led cover-up continued to this day. The sound 
tramples of horses' hooves and muffled motorcycle engines heralded the funeral cortege as it moved slowly toward the capital. On a caisson, under an American flag, lay the body of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the longest-serving president in American history. Four months later, in August 1945, the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan surrendered. The war was over. These events marked a transformation. The emergence of the United States as a leading player on the world stage and a new willingness to investigate the event that catapulted America into the war. Three months after VJ Day, Senator Alban Barkley of Kentucky convened the Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack. This exhaustive review produced 25,000 pages of testimony and documentation. The committee laid much of the blame on the commanders at Pearl Harbor and largely exonerated Roosevelt and his senior advisors. But its conclusions resulted in charges of cover-up and cronyism. Now, in the 21st century, as the American government declassifies reams of World War II documents, some experts are reopening the case for a conspiracy. The only way that the Japanese could pull off such a real and complete and total victory at Pearl Harbor was if FDR and his administration was to withhold the vital intelligence from Pearl Harbor. The question is, why did FDR withhold it? Richard Hill is an historian with a PhD from Georgetown University. He contends that FDR and members of his cabinet were aware of the Japanese plans to attack Hawaii. General Marshall and Admiral Stark and indeed FDR indeed knew that Pearl Harbor was being painted for a bombing run by the Japanese. of October 1941, an intercepted diplomatic cable from Japanese High Command arrived at the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington. Some months previously, America had cracked Japan's secret codes. It meant that cryptographers were able to decipher a coded message sent from Tokyo to its spies in Hawaii. That missive has since become known as the Bomb Plot Message. After the war, the Congressional Committee examined the bomb plot message. Officers questioned about it had passed it off as unremarkable at the time. But the committee heard one general testify that the bomb plot message was in fact unique. Of the thousands of decoded Japanese cables, only this one asked for specific locations of ships at anchor. The bomb plot's intelligence specifically asked for the dispositions of the warships and airplanes guarding Pearl Harbor. The obvious intent of the bomb plot's intelligence was to place a grid over Pearl Harbor so that pilots flying in would immediately be able to identify the targets. American 
couriers sent the deciphered message to the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, and then to the Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall. Then, according to Hill, the top secret message went to President Roosevelt. FDR was making all the decisions. Every historian understands that FDR was reading all of the U.S. intelligence decrypts of Japanese coded transmissions. I know. Two men in particular could make immediate use of the information. Admiral Husband Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter Short, the commanders at Pearl Harbor. But they never received it. According to Hill, that was not an accident. If FDR and his administration deliberately withheld the vital intelligence from Pearl Harbor, and all the evidence indicates that they did, then it was certainly a deliberate conspiracy to set Pearl Harbor up for a total defeat. There are other researchers who support Hill's extraordinary hypothesis. They allege the key to understanding exactly what Roosevelt and other officials knew, and at what point they knew it, lies within the United States code-breaking operation. Breaking the Japanese military codes is, was uh, America's great secret of World War II. All agree that, sometime before Pearl Harbor, the U.S. had broken the Japanese diplomatic codes. But in 2000, Robert Stinnett completed almost 20 years of research by publishing his findings, which conclude that America had also cracked the top-secret operational codes of the Japanese Navy. According to Stinnett, this proves that Roosevelt's closest military advisors must have known when and where the attack would occur. The fact that we broke it, we knew what Japan was up to. We knew it before Pearl Harbor. We knew it all through the war. We knew where, the, where Japan's uh, ships were going to be, what their plans were, were to be. Stinnett's evidence includes two U.S. naval dispatches. In a memo sent in October 1940, over a year before Pearl Harbor, Rear Admiral Royal Ingersoll, the Assistant Chief of Naval Operations in Washington, documented the progress of his code-breaking team. This secret cable to his specific commanders referred to the Japanese Naval Operational Codes. It read, It is estimated that at least six months will be required before complete messages can be read. He said that we had broken the Japanese Operations Code. If Ingersoll's timetable was accurate, America should have been able to decrypt secret Japanese naval correspondence by the spring or summer of 1941. smoking gun of Pearl Harbor is the breaking of the Japanese uh, naval code and, and, and it's only until recently when I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the Navy that I got these records and the uh, including the uh, officer in charge who actually uh, broke the code and, and confirmed that that officer in charge was Lieutenant Commander John Leachweiler. He and his 75-man code-breaking team labored inside an impregnable tunnel cut into a mountainside on the island of Corregidor in the Philippines. Photographers would work about eight-hour shifts, then they would have eight hours off, then they'd come back to work again. But many of them slept right at their desk. 
Leetweiler and his staff concentrated on one page at a time, checking all the clues, deciphering page upon page of text, day after day. While researching his book, Stenet uncovered a second document drafted by Leetweiler, which was received by his superiors in Washington. In it, Stenet says Leetweiler indicated that his Corregidor team was reading current traffic and had broken the Japanese naval code. Commander Leetweiler says that he was current in, in uh, de intercepting, decoding, and translating the messages as of November 16, 1941. What more do you need? Stenet also maintains that the Japanese fleet, led by Vice Admiral Nagumo, broke radio silence as they steamed towards Pearl Harbor, allowing U.S. interceptors to track the course of the oncoming ships. The actual evidence that Stenet has uncovered that not only did Nagumo break radio silence, but the U.S. Uh, naval listening posts were listening to Nagumo's transmissions and therefore plotting Nagumo's voyage across the Pacific towards Pearl Harbor only adds credence to the explanation that FDR suppressed here yet another piece of vital intelligence deliberately kept the commanders at Pearl Harbor in the dark. Japanese warships churned up the waters of the Pacific as they proceeded towards Hawaii. During those tense days, some people believe that President Franklin D. Roosevelt was setting up his own naval base at Pearl Harbor for attack. Author Robert Stinnett insists he has proof that the Japanese fleet broke radio silence during its voyage southeastwards. If so, the U.S. Navy would have been well aware of the approaching vessels. The radio silence doctrine is another of the major Pearl Harbor hoax. It, 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 it holds that, uh, that beginning on, on November 25th, Hawaii time, the Japanese Navy went on radio silence. Until now, most authorities have accepted that the Japanese ships maintained strict radio silence as they approached Hawaii. Stinnett agrees that the Japanese naval commander ordered radio silence, but he says a proviso in the order allowed individual captains to ignore it. The Japanese admirals, for some strange reason, they threw that order to the wind and engaged in extensive radio communications with one another as they were approaching Pearl Harbor. One American who was tracking those communications, according to Stinnett, was Leslie Grogan. He was a radio operator on a cruise ship bound for Honolulu. The SS Lurley, which is a passenger liner, was en route from San Francisco to Hawaii. They also had a radio direction finder aboard, and the radio operators were listening to the Japanese warships. So they picked up the messages, these extensive uh, uh, military naval communications. And they picked them up from about November 30th uh, to about December the 5th. 
Just a few days after the assault on Pearl Harbor, U.S. naval intelligence confiscated the original logbook from the Lurling, including Grogan's notes. The log was eventually sent for storage to a federal record center outside San Francisco. It then somehow disappeared. All that remains of the log's existence is an undated, unsigned withdrawal slip. But Grogan apparently reconstructed his notes on the day his log was appropriated. Fifty years later, Robert Stinnett tracked them down. Grogan wrote that the Japanese radio transmission boldly blasts away, that the signal's finder bearings and the main body of the signals came from north and west of Honolulu. Stanett maintained that even U.S. naval intelligence in Pearl Harbor picked up the radio transmissions of the Japanese fleet. He cites a communications intelligence summary issued by the Navy's listening post at Pearl Harbor. The document was dated the 25th of November, 1941, the very same day the Japanese attack fleet left for Hawaii. It reported that the commander-in-chief of Japan's first air fleet, Vice Admiral Nagumo, held extensive communications with his Central Pacific commander. Stinnett asserts ominous radio traffic was picked up by Allied personnel all around the Pacific Rim. You have the stations at Seattle, you have the stations in Eureka and San Francisco picking up the same, same messages. This is not one or two, this is uh, uh, scores of people reporting, uh, hearing these messages, and it was put in, in, in the naval records, it's documented. A meeting did take place at the White House after, according to Stinnett, stations on the west coast of America intercepted a flurry of Japanese communications. In attendance were President Roosevelt, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, and the Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall. On November 27th, uh, uh, President Roosevelt told uh, General Marshall to send a message to the Hawaiian and Philippine commanders, don't interfere with Japan's overt act of war. The United States desires that they, uh, Japan, commit the first overt act. Commander at Pearl Harbor, Admiral Husband Kimmel, received this message at his headquarters. In other words, let the Japanese submarines uh, enter Pearl Harbor and try to sink our ships. There's no argument about what FDR meant. Uh, he meant that, um, that the U.S. naval plan uh, to defend Pearl Harbor should not and cannot be executed. Admiral Stark and FDR, it seems, obviously, wanted the Japanese to surprise and utterly destroy Pearl Harbor. At 7.55 a.m. on the 7th of December, after a three and a half thousand mile voyage across the North Pacific, the Japanese flotilla of more than 30 vessels delivered its cargo of bombers and fighter planes.
within two hours, the first air assault in military history to be entirely launched from aircraft carriers had obliterated the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. attack demolished most of the U.S. Pacific fleet and killed over 2,400 sailors, soldiers, and civilians. The following day, the United States declared war on Japan. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Three days later, Germany, Japan's ally, declared war on the United States. According to Hill and Stinnett, these events unfolded exactly as Roosevelt had intended. The historical record judged that Pearl Harbor was a tragic consequence of bungled opportunities and missed clues. But Stinnett, Hill, and others believe that is a naive interpretation of events. If anything, they say, President Roosevelt was directly responsible for the tragedy of Pearl Harbor. Gross negligence becomes high treason when the motive is discovered or understood. message. The cracking of the secret Japanese naval operations code. The breaking of radio silence by the attacking fleet. These three crucial pieces of evidence, according to some researchers, suggest that highly placed members of Roosevelt's administration knew in advance of the planned attack on Pearl Harbor. Why would the president and his senior advisors allow the murder of thousands of Americans to happen? The alleged conspiracy is based on the notion that Roosevelt knew the Pearl Harbor catastrophe would result in war with Hitler and Nazi Germany, which was exactly what he wanted. The problem for President Roosevelt was to end the isolation movement in this country. By 1940, the Second World War was well underway in Europe and Roosevelt regarded eventual American involvement as inevitable. But Americans, for the most part, hadn't yet come to that conclusion. Opinion polls conducted just months before Pearl Harbor show that 70 to 80 percent of Americans did not want to go to war against Germany. So while the general public in America tried to ignore the situation, Hitler devoured most of Europe and then let loose the blitz on Great Britain. Japanese forces occupied China. In September 1940, the Axis nations of Germany, Italy, and Japan signed a formal mutual assistance treaty called the Tripartite Pact. The key 
phrase was that uh, if uh, any one of the nations got into a state of war with a country not yet in the European conflict, then that would trigger this uh, uh, tripartite pact and they would come to one another's aid. Jeanette believes FDR deliberately and methodically provoked Japan in order to trigger the provisions of the pact and force America out of its isolationism. According to his theory, Roosevelt knew a surprise Japanese attack would enrage the public and jumpstart the American war machine. In this way, the president would gain entry through the back door to what he really wanted, war with Hitler. Within 10 days of that signing, the United States came up with a plan to trigger this tripartite pact into the state of war and to aim provocations at Japan to commit an overt act of war against the United States. According to Stinnett, that plan was drafted by Lieutenant Commander Arthur McCullum at the Office of Naval Intelligence. On the 7th of October, 1940, McCullum arrived at his office in Washington to put the finishing touches to a memo. Some would say it was the most important document he ever wrote. Commander McCullum wrote a memo to the Director of Naval Intelligence and enlisted the eight uh, actions that he said would cause Japan to commit an overt act of war. They included keeping the U.S. fleet in the vicinity of Hawaii rather than returning it to San Diego, putting an end to all trade with Japan, including the sale of crude oil, and sending two divisions of submarines to the Orient. McCullum sent this memo to his boss, the director of naval intelligence. Stinnett believes that FDR and his advisors soon saw it. President Roosevelt ordered that the you know, most important messages be delivered to him. And Commander McCollum was his routing officer. Uh, he routed all of the messages that he wanted the President Roosevelt to see, and which the President wanted to see, through the naval aid. According to Stinnett, Roosevelt immediately adopted McCollum's memo as his own step-by-step -step blueprint for provoking a war with Japan. Circumstantial evidence shows that he acted on every one of the eight provocations. Richard Hill also accepts the backdoor theory. FDR certainly did have a motivation to deliberately withhold vital intelligence from Pearl Harbor for the purpose of accomplishing a complete and total Japanese victory at Pearl Harbor, which would then necessarily and inevitably be blamed on Germany. One poll taken immediately after Pearl Harbor showed that more than 60% of Americans indeed thought that Germany was behind the attack. The Americans were very inclined to believe that Germany was the puppet master controlling Japan. Richard Hill and Robert Stinnett insist that the American government is still sitting on more evidence showing that Roosevelt had foreknowledge of the attack on Pearl Harbor. A cache of information on code-breaking, intercepted radio transmissions, and the assault itself remains classified information. 
It will not be divulged uh, unless they, the government, want it divulged. Hill also contends that the military cryptologists themselves continue to obscure the search for truth out of a sense of duty. They cannot, under orders, talk about anything that they ever did in World War II until it is officially declassified. Strengthened by documents declassified in the 1990s, Hill, Stinnett, and other Pearl Harbor researchers have resuscitated the salient points of a conspiracy theory that Congress addressed and dismissed in 1946. In the process, they've created a furore. An intermittent battle has raged concerning what exactly was known in advance of the attack. In recent years, a number of authors and historians have rekindled the debate based in part on newly declassified documents. Historian Richard Hill and author Robert Stinnett both claim that top American officials, including President Roosevelt himself, saw the so-called bomb plot message, realized it signaled an impending Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and deliberately withheld the information from the commanders in Hawaii. Warren Kimball has written extensively on the history of the Second World War, and he disagrees profoundly. The bomb plot message didn't prove a thing. There's nothing in the bomb plot message that said Japanese planes will appear over Pearl Harbor on the morning of December 7, 1941. Nor is there any incontrovertible evidence that the information ever landed on Roosevelt's desk. All the evidence indicates that Roosevelt did not read original decrypts. Kimball also thinks there's an obvious reason why the U.S. military commanders did not grasp the significance of the bomb plot message. There was a huge amount of information coming in to Washington and to other intelligence collection uh, locales about what the Japanese were doing and separating noise from intelligence about the actual attack was extraordinarily difficult. In the late 1990s, a journalist called Stephen Budiansky was researching his book on code breaking in World War II. He found a crucial document. It provides a powerful counter to the argument that America had cracked the Japanese naval operations code before Pearl Harbor. We have the month-by-month -month progress reports of all of the U.S. Navy's code-breaking groups. These were prepared at the time. They have date stamps on each one of them. There's one for each month throughout 1940 and 1941. Budiansky says that the Naval Intelligence Progress reports show that even a month after Pearl Harbor, cryptologists still had not broken the Japanese naval code known as AN-1 and later JN-25. On January 8, 1942, we see in the record decrypt number one in JN-25, and a couple of months later, we've gotten to the point where, again, by no means all of the code book had been recovered, or, or the, all of the additive book, but enough to start getting current messages decrypted. The progress reports appear to prove that the code breakers were telling the truth in 1945 when they testified before Congress. 
everyone who worked on it at the time has said then and since that we simply were not far enough along to read any of these uh, Japanese naval messages for intelligence value. Regarding the so-called proof that the Japanese code had been broken, which is contained in a document written at Corregidor by the commanding officer, John Leetweiler, Budiansky argues that the letter has been misinterpreted. They meant they had figured out how it worked. They'd figured out the indicator system, they'd figured out the mechanism, how, how it worked. Then there was still a huge amount of work to do. Budiansky also disputes the claim that the Japanese fleet broke radio silence as it headed to Hawaii, so giving away its position to American intelligence. The only signals that were being picked up were coming not from the attack fleet itself, but from shore stations which were attempting to deceive us into thinking that they were those ships and that those ships were still in Japanese home waters. In fact, in an update written by Naval Intelligence in Washington on the 1st of December 1941, the Japanese aircraft carriers were described as operating in home waters, even at the time they were proceeding at full speed towards Hawaii. The best-known American expert on the cryptographers of the Second World War is New York author, historian, and former editor of Newsday, David Kahn. None of the American radio men who were listening very hard for these things, and our guys were very sharp on this, heard any transmissions from the carriers. And even more important, perhaps, is that the Japanese themselves say that there were no transmissions from the carriers. Protagonists of the conspiracy theory contend that Roosevelt's motive for permitting the attack was that it would give him a backdoor entry into the war in Europe. Most mainstream historians reject that hypothesis. The idea that a Pacific War, a war against Japan, was a backdoor to war, misunderstands fundamentally the structure of American strategic thinking at this time. David Kennedy won a Pulitzer Prize in the year 2000 for his book on the Depression and World War II. The war against Japan was a distraction, and it, it actually depleted resources from the main theater of conflict, which was Europe. It compelled us to understand how absolutely outrageously impossible is the notion that there was a conspiracy. Kennedy also maintains that Robert Stinnett misunderstands the terms of the tripartite pact. Stinnett contends that it required Germany to come to the defense of Japan if it was in a state of war. But the agreement did not require Germany to come to Japan's aid unless Japan was the victim of aggression. Specific terms of the agreement required each and every one of them to come to the aid of another, another member of the pact, if that other party were attacked. So when the Pearl Harbor event happened, Japan had not been attacked. Japan was the attacker. Nor does Kennedy accept the argument that nothing short of an unprovoked act of war would persuade Americans to abandon their historic support for isolationism. There's no question that Franklin Roosevelt had a huge, historic job on his hands to convince the American people that they indeed had a stake in the outcome of this conflict. But in my judgment, he had largely succeeded in convincing a heavy majority of his countrymen that the United States must play a role in this matter. Kennedy is at pains to point out the enormous budget Congress passed nine months before Pearl Harbor was bombed. The Lend-Lease Act committed the U.S. to providing Britain with huge amounts of munitions, planes, and other essential war materials. 
the cost of the aid was $7 billion, more than six times the entire American defense budget just three years earlier. a very, very dramatic victory for Roosevelt in overcoming this deep isolationist tendency of the country. Many experts also dispute the idea that the memo written by Lieutenant Commander Arthur McCollum was adopted by FDR as his blueprint for war. It's improbable, if not ludicrous, to think that there would not be a strong indication somewhere in the document, somewhere in memoirs, somewhere along the line, that that memo was a guiding Principle. The notion that the cable Admiral Kimmel and Lieutenant General Short received nine days before the attack amounted to an order to stand down has also been vehemently repudiated. Instead, much of the cable gave the opposite impression. The war alert uh, warning uh, was quite explicit that the, for traditional, political, and I dare say even moral reasons, uh, the United States wanted the Japanese to fire the first shot. But the same message said with emphasis that this instruction to make the Japanese take the first step should not, repeat not, put any of your forces in danger. If it involves compromising the defense of your force and being, then don't do it. According to David Kahn, blame for the attack lies squarely with the commanders of Pearl Harbor, not the president or his advisors. Those two commanders, Short and Kimmel, had one job there to do, and that was defend Pearl Harbor. They had one job to do, and they didn't do it. That judgment may be unduly harsh. Other historians insist the blame doesn't stop at Kimmel and Short. The true history, they say, is neither black nor white, but an obscure shade of gray. These historians charge that a saber-rattling United States deliberately provoked the Japanese and the attack at Pearl Harbor was simply a preempted strike. President Roosevelt was trying to put so much pressure on Japan that the Japanese had very little choice but to attack the United States somewhere. July 1946, the Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack released its final gargantuan report. Most historians regard the report as an invaluable resource. They went uh, as far as they possibly could go in unearthing the material. But not everyone agrees. The commission was the product of politics in Washington purpose was not one of, of objective scholarship. Robert Smith Thompson, Professor Emeritus of International Studies at the University of South Carolina, has written several books on international relations. Thompson was perplexed by Japan's motive for launching a surprise attack. The country, he says, must have known that America would retaliate in a war the Japanese could not possibly win. So Thompson examined the committee's records to find out why Japan committed itself. I was convinced that uh, there was something they perceived to be almost catastrophic that would have led them to bomb Pearl Harbor. Yet the uh, commission didn't address that kind of issue. 
Thompson found no evidence that FDR and his advisors knew about the attack and allowed it to happen. Instead, he saw the attack as a preemptive strike perpetrated by the Japanese high command, convinced that it had to prevent an imminent U.S. assault on its country. Thompson says Japan interpreted several U.S. moves as aggressive measures. The construction of American bases along the Pacific Rim. The relocating of the Pacific Fleet from San Diego to Hawaii. And the oil embargo imposed by America on Japan. Taken altogether, these actions convinced Japan that it had to attack America before it itself was attacked. What Roosevelt was doing was putting enormous pressure on the Japanese to back off from their war in China. Why? They were constantly bombing uh, American mission churches in China. They were bombing everything they could find to bomb. And Roosevelt believed that they were a truly truly uh, vile uh, outlaw nation. The historical consensus is that Roosevelt, despite his hatred of Japan, wanted to avoid a war and instead concentrate on attacking Nazi Germany. But Thompson doesn't think this view entirely explains FDR's policy on Japan. He was very aggressive, that he was definitely trying to bring the United States into a state of, of being able to crush the Germans and the Japanese. There were, there were build-ups taking place in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. He was prepared to fight a two-front war. For those reasons, Thompson maintains, Roosevelt does share some of the blame for the Pearl Harbor assault. He wasn't acknowledging what he was doing. President Roosevelt provoked the Japanese into war. Ever since the 7th of December 1941, the attempt to explain the attack on Pearl Harbor has included stories of intrigue and conspiracy. When something is incredible, you want to find some way to make quote-unquote sense about it. And I think a number of people can't simply deal with the fact that they were good enough to beat us, so it must have been a conspiracy. The somewhat frantic efforts to explain the attack include no less than ten separate investigations conducted by the Roosevelt administration, the Army, the Navy, and the United States Congress. The panels in general found that Lieutenant General Short and Admiral Kimmel, the disgraced Pearl Harbor commanders, had indeed failed in their duty. They were wrong, and it was basically their fault that caused the deaths of uh, 2,400 Americans at Pearl Harbor. But then, as now, critics insisted that Washington was making scapegoats of two honorable men. In October 2000, Congress passed an amendment to a military spending bill that cleared the Pacific commanders, both long since dead. Short and Kimmel cannot be blamed, just as Congress found. They were denied this information. They were told to stand aside and let Japan commit the first overt act. Kimmel and Short, on the ground, become, to use a word Americans will become very familiar with, become the patsies. Robert Goldberg, a professor of history at the University of Utah, has written extensively about the role of the conspiracy theory in American culture. The conspiracy theories about Pearl Harbor actually shift the blame and the burden, the guilt, away from the Japanese. The guilt and the burden of Pearl Harbor is not in Tokyo. These conspiracy theories are very much politically motivated. 
In September 1944, shortly before Roosevelt stood for re-election for the fourth time, a Republican representative, Forrest Harness of Indiana, made the first congressional charge alleging a Pearl Harbor conspiracy. He said that three days prior to the attack, the Australian government had warned Washington that a Japanese aircraft carrier was steaming towards Hawaii, but the information was withheld from Kimmel and Short. Charges of this sort had been in the air for a long time, but the Indiana legislators' allegation entered them permanently into the public record. They have been the source of controversy ever since. Any such conspiracy would have had to involve so many people. It would have been a conspiracy so vast and an infamy so deep as to dwarf anything in the history of mankind. FDR's personal fingerprints cannot be found, of course, because the case against him is uh, highly circumstantial. But circumstantial cases, of course, convict criminals all the time. The 1945 Congressional Committee did criticize Washington officials for ignoring the bomb plot messages. But its Democratic majority found no evidence to support the charges that Roosevelt and his top aides, quote, tricked, provoked, incited, cajoled or coerced Japan into attacking this nation, unquote. However, the minority report written by the Republicans on the committee lambasted Roosevelt and his war council for failing to carry out their essential responsibilities. Today, several historians continue to search for a satisfactory explanation for the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. I think we were insulted as an advanced industrial state that we could be taken on so successfully by a country that just two or three generations earlier had been essentially in a medieval state. How could this have happened? Uh, the only explanation must be that somebody on the American side had been derelict in duty or even treasonous. So these are natural psychological reactions. They're not very lovely to contemplate, but I think that's what underlies this. Those who still seek answers may turn again to the bomb plot message and the sworn testimony that, of all the intercepted messages, no other resembled it. They will remember that the Army and... Can your family survive a food shortage lasting two weeks, six months, or maybe longer? Sound far-fetched? We live in precarious times. There is an ever-increasing possibility of food shortages caused by terrorist attacks, natural disasters, truck strikes, or monetary collapse. You owe it to yourself and family to prepare, and you can by getting a supply of our long-storing, freeze-dried, and dehydrated foods. Our foods are time-tested to store for decades, require a minimum of time and energy to prepare, while maintaining superior nutritional value, freshness, and taste. Our foods were designed for the space program and are in constant use today by our own nuclear submarine service. Contact the Freeze Dry Guy today at Freeze Dry Guy at Lancet.com. That's Freeze Dry Guy at L A N S E T.com or call 530 265 8333. 530 265 8333 and let them know you heard it on American Voice Radio.
suggest to people that their money should be gold or silver coin, as it says in the Constitution, they sometimes stare at you with a blank expression or make the most extraordinary comments. Do you feel that our paper currency should still be backed by gold or silver? Uh, I think there should be a backing for currency. Otherwise, there's a temptation to run it out and uh, make too much of it. I'm not really sure what you mean. Um, like change the color of our money or something? Or I buy silver. Gold. I don't know a lot about this subject, but I would say be just because of counterfeit. I think it should, but unfortunately it isn't. And why do you think it should? I don't think the current system uh, is stable. These statements by everyday American citizens show how little people understand the intentions of the Founding Fathers. As the Constitution itself says, it is the supreme law of the land. And therefore the Constitution ranks ahead of any statutes of Congress, any statutes or constitutions for that matter of the states, and decisions of the courts and any law or decision of the courts that is inconsistent with it is to that extent void. It's not a law at all. So what's going on here? Why does the Constitution clearly state that our money shall be coin, yet we are using government-issued, supposedly official, paper dollar bills? And we can't even redeem these for silver any longer. And why does Thomas Jefferson, the very man who drafted the Declaration of Independence and co-authored the U.S. Constitution, warn us about banks and corporations? Something is off here. The Federal Reserve System, to most people, seems like it is an agency of the federal government. That's what I thought it was when I first started to research this topic. But it turns out that it's nothing of the kind. The Federal Reserve is a hybrid organization. It's a partnership between the federal government and the private banks. When you look at it deeper than that, its essence is neither as a government agency or a private company. In reality, it is a cartel. In other words, it's no different in essence than a banana cartel or a sugar cartel or an oil cartel. It's a grouping of the large private corporations in the field, banking, who have come together to create agreement between themselves to limit competition, to preserve their profits, and to make sure that no newcomers come in and uh, take away their position. That's what cartels are always designed to do. And it's a shocking thing to realize that something as prestigious as the Federal Reserve System, at its core, is nothing more or less than a banking cartel with exactly those same objectives. The motivation for Congress to go into partnership with the elite bankers who formed the Federal Reserve is clear. Endless amounts of money could effectively be printed up and lent to Congress. Thus, individual congressmen would no longer be forced to depend on raising taxes to generate additional revenue, an unpopular action that can cost them re-election. Ironically, if there were no Federal Reserve, there may have been no need for an income tax. The country did fine without it for 137 years. The income tax amendment was introduced the same year the Federal Reserve System was formed, 1913. 
coincidence? Prior to the formation of the Federal Reserve System, the country never did better. In fact, that was the problem, at least for the major banks. Capital formation, also known as savings, was happening all over America. Other than panics, many of which were caused by unethical lending practices, America was doing great. So much so, the big New York banks were losing business. But why isn't the mainstream media telling us this story? What would motivate them to refrain from a critical interpretation of banking history and the Federal Reserve System, especially today, when they broadcast critical, even intimate reports on every other aspect of life? I consider the Federal Reserve Act and the creation of the Federal Reserve as being unconstitutional. It gave uh, the government then uh, the power to create legal tender out of thin air, that is to create paper money, and although they didn't do that overnight, between 1913 and 1971, that is exactly what happened. But the notion of a central bank uh, does not uh, fit into the Constitution. Uh, the Congress has the authority to coin money, and only gold and silver should be legal tender. And uh, this is an absolute contradiction of the Constitution to have a Federal Reserve system and a central bank. Not a lot of American people understand it, and I would add that probably not too many people here in the Congress understand it either. I think they see it as a convenience, and I think a lot of other people see it as a convenience because they think they're protected by the type of system that we have. But a fiat monetary system or a paper money system is merely a system where the government has this power and authority to dictate and insist that a piece of paper is legal tender. And even members of the banking committee have come up to me and they say, you mean our dollar isn't backed by gold anymore? Uh, not realizing that the Federal Reserve really accommodates big government uh, bureaucrats and politicians. There's another major problem with the system in that the system is a cartel structure, which means that they've taken all the banks in the country and put them into one economic unit that's essentially regulated from the top by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Comes 1932-33 had the crash. Uh, the Roosevelt administration came in and one of the first important pieces of legislation that was passed was the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933. And the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933 did for all industries in the economy the same thing that the Federal Reserve System did for the banks in 1913. It created a cartel structure. All the steel producers were in one group Poultry people were in another group, mining people were in another group, and on top of this whole thing was something that looked like the Board of Governors called the National Recovery Administration. The National Industrial Recovery Act was challenged as to its constitutionality, and a case went to the Supreme Court, 1935, the Schechter Poultry case. And the Supreme Court unanimously declared it unconstitutional. They said this kind of delegation of power by Congress to private parties is, and this is an exact quote, unknown to our law, unquote. You couldn't find it anywhere, by any method of interpretation, simply unknown. Well, the difference between the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Federal Reserve Act is essentially zero. The peculiarity here is that the Federal Reserve Act has never gotten that question to the Supreme Court. Let's take a second look at the words of Thomas Jefferson. A deeper look at exactly who owns and operates the private banks known as the Federal Reserve System and what their mission statement might be. 
The banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all their prosperity. Interesting that Jefferson not only mentions the banks that will grow up, but the corporations as well. Bear in mind that each one of the Federal Reserve Banks is basically a private corporation. Neither you and I, the people, nor the federal government for that matter, own these corporations, these so-called banks. They are owned by other corporations, known as member banks. The Fed was formed not in Washington, D.C., not in the halls of Congress or some meeting room, but it was formed on a private island off the coast of Georgia called Jekyll Island. This island in those days was a club they called the Jekyll Island Club. And its members were a relatively small group of billionaires from New York. People like J.P. Morgan and William Rockefeller and their business associates. When they went to the island, they all traveled aboard the private railroad car of Senator Nelson Aldrich. This was November of 1910, and he and six other men were told they mustn't be seen together, they couldn't dine together on that evening, and they must avoid newspaper reporters at all costs. One of them carried a shotgun. Just in case he had been confronted by a reporter, he was prepared to tell them that he was going on a duck hunting trip. When they got on board this railroad car, they were told not to address each other by last names, first names only. And two of them even went further and they adopted code names. They were concerned that the identities of all of these seven men might be known to the servants on board the car and that the servants might talk about it. In, in that fashion, the word would get out. Even when they got to the island and went to the clubhouse, they had replaced all of the normal servants with new servants who didn't know any of these people. And they created the Federal Reserve under those kinds of conditions of great secrecy. I can assure you that very few wars of history have ever been plotted under conditions of greater secrecy than that. According to accidental releases of Fed stockholder information, as of 11.05 a.m. Tuesday, July 26, 1983, five member banks own 53% of the stock in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, the most major of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks around the country. This is a controlling interest in the controlling bank. The major stockholders of this major bank, however, are confidential. No one, not even the government or the President of the United States, knows who they are, nor can they find out. We all began to lose track of this ownership on Tuesday, the 26th of July, 1983. Only a small group of elite insiders knows who these owners or controlling agents are in present time. Does this sound like a Thomas Jefferson operation? Does this so-called Federal Reserve System sound like something Ben Franklin, the man who invented the pot-bellied stove and co-authored the Constitution, would set up? Or does this system sound more like something George Orwell would write about in his nightmare book, 1984.
Again, G. Edward Griffin. In those days, there was a great deal of concern among the American people about the concentration of financial power in the hands of a few uh, very wealthy and um, powerful financial interests in Wall Street. Um, they called this the money trust. And uh, the cry in those days was to break the grip of the money trust. And one of the primary purposes of the Federal Reserve Act, as it was promoted to the American people, was just that, to break the grip of the money trust. They were going to write a law that was going to take the power away from these people and put it in the hands of their trustworthy politicians, you see. Put it in the hands of the people through the electoral process. That was the propaganda behind the Federal Reserve System. So what's the purpose of the secrecy? It's because when you look at the list of these people who went, they were the money trust. They were the representatives of the banks, of J.P. Morgan, the Rockefellers. They represented Kuhn Loeb and Company, Warburgs in Germany and the Netherlands, and the Rothschilds in England. This was the money trust, not only of the United States, but of the world. Had that fact been known, who these people were that were drafting the Federal Reserve System, the, the trick would have been exposed, and the public never would have adopted the Federal Reserve Act as, in fact, they did. When you think about the significance of the Federal Reserve Act being passed under those conditions, the American people didn't know, but it was banking interests that were behind it. Powerful banking interests because they wanted their assets protected. They wanted the Federal Reserve to be the lender of last resort. So if they had been loaning out and risking the money, and these loans go bad, instead of having the market take care of this, they wanted bailed out. And this is why it was a tremendous popular thing to do for the banks and of course the big business people who were borrowing the money. So it was very, very special interest directed and it was, it was designed for the elite and even today a lot of people don't quite understand that. So it's an educational job as well outside of Washington but hopefully someday people here in Washington, especially the members of the banking committee, will gain some interest in this subject because ultimately we will have to address it. Where does Congress get most of its funding? I would like to say from us, but I'm sure they have uh, foreign investors that they also get their money from us. Okay. Taxes. People. Government. Um, it gets it out of federal taxation, of course from taxes, but if you mean today, a great deal we're getting from China buying treasury bills. They print it. And can you elaborate on that? They have no funding. They have no money. It's all puff and mirrors. They have no money. It's all an illusion. There's, there's not much in back of it. As we can see, the average American citizen has conflicting ideas as to where Congress gets its funding. In actuality, Congress gets most of it by borrowing it from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve gets the so-called money by effectively printing it up. The whole process is known as the Mandrake Mechanism. Thus, today's paper currency, far from the gold and silver coinage stipulated by the founders, is essentially created out of thin air. Most people are alarmed when they hear about the fact that the Fed can create money out of nothing and charge interest on it, so-called interest. It starts with Congress. Remember, 
A moment ago, I said that the Federal Reserve System was a partnership between a cartel and the federal government. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, we've got to go vote, and uh, we want to thank you for being here with us uh, for today. And, well, if uh, there's a partnership, thank you also for there's a reason for the partners, both of them, to be in it, or they wouldn't be. More than a pleasure. So why is the banking fraternity in this partnership, and why are the politicians in it? Congress needs more money. They always need more money. They, uh, they like to spend money. That gets them elected. Uh, they don't like to raise taxes because that gets them unelected. The answer, of course, is that they borrow it. If you're not going to tax it from somebody, you can borrow it from somebody else. And that's why we have uh, government bonds and treasury notes and bills and so forth. And we have what's called the national debt because they've borrowed money to pay for current expenses that they don't want to pay for through taxes because that would be unpopular. So 30 days after they borrowed a billion dollars or 60 days, whatever the term of the loan is, they have to pay that money back. Well, lo and behold, it turns out that the congressmen and the senators are still not taking in as much money in taxes as they are spending in benefits. So they don't have the money to repay the loan. So what do they do? Easy. Borrow some more. Borrow enough to pay back the original loan, plus a little bit more to keep them in office. So this process goes on and on and on, and that's why we have the national debt growing and growing and growing. The Federal Reserve enters the picture at this stage because, you see, they can never borrow enough from the private sector. There's never enough existing money out there for the politicians to borrow. So what do they do? They go to the Federal Reserve System and by agreement, remember this is their partner now, the Federal Reserve System agrees literally to create the money that they're going to lend to the government. It's not really a lending at all, as you can see, but they, they use the old traditional words of lending it to the government, when in fact all they're doing is just printing it for the government. They're creating it for the government. And then they call it a loan. Of course, they don't print it all because most of it's checkbook money. But nevertheless, the process is the same as if they had just turned on the printing presses and printed all this money and gave it to the federal government. So now, once the Federal Reserve System creates this money out of nothing, literally, it's fresh money into the society, into the economy, and that's how the money supply keeps growing and growing and growing. What about the banking partner? What's in it for them? I come in and I give the bank, say, 100 ounces of gold, and the bank offers me some interest payment on that. They're going to pay me 3% interest. And they're going to take that 100 ounces of gold and they're going to lend it out at 5%. That's how they make their money, the 2% spread. Okay? Now that's fine so far because I know that gold is in there, it's being loaned out, and someday now I'm getting 2% interest and someday I can ask for that principal back. It might be six months, it might be a year, whatever it is. Where the trick comes into this is the bank says, not only are we going to lend that money out, but we're going to allow you, Mr. Depositor, to draw on that money right now. All right? Which means that they can't possibly be saying that I can draw 100% of that deposit when they've also loaned out 100% of that deposit. Now, maybe they don't loan out 100%, maybe they don't loan out 90% or 80% or whatever it is. And that's the fractional reserve concept. They don't have enough reserves to pay out all of these obligations that they've made, especially with respect to paper currency, because usually that's the way it worked. Now, why do they do this? Well, they do this because they make money. 
Right? If I can loan out essentially more than I have in my reserves, by that difference I'm increasing interest payments. So the bankers are beneficiaries of this. And obviously the early, the first lender, the person that receives that money is a beneficiary because he's getting money they wouldn't have gotten otherwise, even though he has to pay interest on it. But then what happens down the line? This is the fascinating part about it. The market has set prices and wages on the basis of what it believes is the total amount of money that's in circulation. Along come the banks and they start generating new money that the market doesn't know about. It finds out about it because the money goes into circulation. So I'm the first user of this money. I've just received the loan from the bank. I'm going to go out and buy cement with it. And when I buy cement with it, cement is at the original market price. Now as that money starts percolating into society, the market realizes there's more money than there was before. More money chasing the same amount of goods means the prices of goods go up, right? So eventually, somewhere down the line, that same cement that I just bought for $5 a pound is going to cost someone else $6 a pound. Now, if he buys that cement at $6 a pound before his income has increased commensurately, what's happening to his real wealth? He's losing real wealth, right? His costs have gone up, his income stays the same, his real wealth is decreased. Whose real wealth has increased in this transaction? Mine and the bank's, because we got the full value of the money right at the beginning. So this system transfers wealth somehow. You can't exactly follow it. But the principle is there. It transfers wealth from society to the creators of money. For every billion dollars that's put into the banks, I, as a commercial banker, can create an additional $9 billion and push them out into the economy as loans. Now that $9 billion, based on the $1 billion, which itself was created out of nothing, all of it is just fiat money. It's created out of nothing, but the commercial banks get the bigger end of the deal, as you can see. They can create nine for the private sector called loans, and these are genuine loans. And that is where our money comes from. That is how money is created. Every bit of it is created in this fashion. Every bit of it is based upon debt, and that debt creates money that literally has nothing behind it at all. Now this is how money is created in the Western world. And it's an amazing story. Only a very few people at the top know how money really comes into existence. Best estimates say that a network of about 7,000 people, mostly located in large urban areas worldwide, facilitate the acquisition and control of the voting stock of these banks by proxy. The marching orders as to where literally hundreds of trillions of dollars of monetary power will be directed are believed to be given by the 7,000 on instructions from an insider control group we estimate to number about 300. Of the 300, many are related to one another by blood, marriage, and business ties. And, it would seem, have family ties to the original robber barons of the Industrial Revolution at the turn of the 19th century. More importantly, however, most of the 7,000 involved in this group may be largely unaware of their negative effects on society. They may sincerely, but naively, believe they are simply doing good. Nevertheless, now talking about the 300 who form the inner controlling body, we estimate that about 50 of this group are anything but naive. 
Thus, having successfully established the ultimate money-making machine, the Federal Reserve System, this nefarious cartel of tyrants is in a position to literally acquire control over the assets of the world, deprive the people of all their prosperity, as Thomas Jefferson would say. This is the calculus of the situation, and this is exactly what they are doing, with a little help from their virtuous but ignorant servants in Congress, as John Adams might say. Yes, the Founding Fathers must surely be rolling over in their graves. The original intent of the Constitution is spelled out quite clearly, not only in the document, but in the immediate history that surrounds its formation. Now, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 limits the powers of the states. It says, no state shall coin money. States had coined money. Stops them from doing it. No state shall emit bills of credit. Now, that's one of those peculiar words. If you were living in that time, you knew what it meant. It meant, essentially, what we call paper money. No state shall emit bills of credit, which means that a state itself cannot create paper money, and then it can't do it indirectly by setting up some kind of a bank that's controlled by the state. Third provision in that clause is, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. And notice the language, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin, meaning states can and should make gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. But the historical background shows absolutely clearly that paper money was not going to be allowed at the national level or the state level. And the very interesting point here is that the same people who wrote the Constitution had been to a large extent in control of the states and of the Congress under the Articles of the Confederation during the War of Independence. These people had emitted large amounts of paper money. The states did it, Congress did it. When that Congress did it was called continental currency. And most people are familiar with the phrase not worth a continental. Paper money depreciated so radically in value that it was essentially worthless. Those same people looked back at what they had done only a few years earlier and said, we're not going to do this anymore. The inflation isn't rising prices. The inflation is the government's program of increasing the supply of money, which devalues the currency, and that causes the prices to go up. Inflation, that is the destruction of money, eventually wipes out the middle class. The best example in the 20th century being uh, what we saw uh, happen in Germany. As the runaway inflation came, the middle class got wiped out. In the early stages, of course, somebody benefited. Uh, eventually it hurts everybody. But in this country right now, we have constant uh, insidious inflation. So there is a transfer of wealth from the poor and the middle class to the wealthy. But because it affects the business cycle and causes prices to go up in general, who suffers the most? The people who can afford it the least, that people on fixed incomes, low middle income people, poor people. I think it especially hits hard low middle income people who are trying to make it on their own and won't go on the dole because their prices go up more and they're the first ones to lose their job when the business cycle turns down. The Federal Reserve, by increasing the credit, creates the boom part of the cycle, but then there's always the result downturn of the cycle when unemployment rises. We're always live. It's almost impossible to believe that the all-powerful dominant media, what Bill O'Reilly calls the elite media, would endlessly cover all these issues, yet be silent on the very subject that is common to all of them. Money. 
and the entity that creates and manages the so-called money supply, the Federal Reserve System. Why is this? One can never watch enough television. <laughs> there has been a tremendous concentration of the mass media over the last 50 years, from over 100 companies to six companies. Back in the 1934 Communications Act, each media company was only allowed to own a handful of stations, and they weren't allowed to have cross-ownership. They couldn't allow own all the media in your town. Now they can own more and more because congressmen who've gotten elected as a result of the mass media have given them more and more. That means very few people have the right to speak to us over television, over radio, through the New York Times, the LA Times, the different news media. The whole purpose of the First Amendment is to guarantee that we have more, not less speech. However, when you start to get down and say only a few people can put up their soapbox, only a few people can address the audience, suddenly you've limited the amount of speech. Now that's the government control of speech. On the other hand, when those few people recognize that the government is the one that's licensed them to speak, they start to act in a way that's not going to jeopardize that relationship. Could this be one of the reasons any critical reporting of universally important issues, such as the Federal Reserve, have been cut out of the public debate for so long? As Ted Turner relates in his article, My Beef with Big Media, why would major media corporations, corporations that control the information flow to 95% of the American citizens, fail to report on the detrimental activities of the Federal Reserve System? A government-sanctioned, quasi-private banking cartel that literally controls 100% of the money flow to the same citizens, as well as the lion's share of the money flow to Congress itself. The amount of money it costs today to run for Congress or even to run for president is obscene. And most of that money goes into television commercials and spots and all of the mass media advertising that needs to be done to reach the 295 million Americans, a vast number of people. And when that person wins, if the media has supported him, naturally he wants to pay them back. He may not think of that consciously, but in appropriating licenses and expanding territories and allowing them to own one more than one media outlet, that's exactly what happens. As a result, the number of media companies, as we said before, has concentrated in a few hands. And unfortunately, Congress and the media work together to present an image to the American people that does not always include every aspect of the truth. This reciprocity, this in cahoots process, has obscured many of the more important issues to the American people. And there's no more important issue than the issue of fiat money. When you give men the power to create money out of nothing, you shouldn't be surprised if they turn around and create money out of nothing, because that's what they're supposed to do. Now, the underlying philosophy is that, well, we'll be very conservative about it. We won't run rampant. We won't abuse this power, would we? So we give them blindly this power to create money out of nothing because we trust them to use this power wisely. Nowhere in history has this ever been a justified trust. Every time man has had that power, and this started back in antiquity, 
Those with the power have abused it. They have created more and more and more money at a rate much faster than the expansion of goods and services which are being produced by the productive side of the economy. Now, if the goods and services were growing at a rate which is exactly the same as the money supply, then the purchasing power of the monetary unit would remain constant. In ancient Rome, if you had a one ounce gold coin, that would be the cost of a nice toga, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of sandals. Today, thousands of years later, if you have a one ounce gold coin, and you convert that into Federal Reserve notes, you can walk into a store and buy a nice suit, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of shoes. The real price of those items, and all items for that matter, throughout history does not change when measured in terms of something of intrinsic value, such as gold or silver, because those things take human effort to produce as well as the, the belt, the toga, and the sandals. Both of them take human effort to produce, and that's why they maintain uh, value with each other. But once you break that away, and you give men the power to, to expand the money supply without that discipline, they're going to expand the money supply faster than the increase in goods and services, and then you're going to have this uh, difference in purchasing power. We call it inflation. Well, it's always politically popular to impose financial burdens on somebody else. It tends to be politically difficult to impose financial burdens on someone who's living alongside of you because they tend to have votes and they tend to have representatives who will take their position. It's fairly easy to impose a financial burden on the future because the future generation tends not to have any votes or representation at all in the present. As soon as you start talking about monetization of debt, where the banks come in and now buy governmental debt with new money that the banks have created through this special privilege they have of creating money in, in the Federal Reserve System, the redistribution of wealth that takes place through that process, most people don't understand. It happens through depreciation of currency, and the depreciation of currency usually leads to increases in prices, which the average person calls inflation. Inflation is really the increase in the money supply. The prices increase is a consequence of that. But the average person doesn't understand how this happens. And he's going to blame gold speculators in Switzerland. He's going to blame greedy unions. He's going to blame you know, price gouging. He's going to blame everybody but Congress and the banking system. So it's easy politically through monetization of debt to expand borrowing beyond prudent levels. Now, now, why is that tyrannous? Well, at a certain level, it's tyrannous. The definition of tyranny is the exercise of a power that no one should be allowed to exercise. Okay? And it's tyrannous because no one should be allowed to exercise a power that puts burdens on people that are not allowed an opportunity to be heard, an opportunity to vote, an opportunity to have some kind of a say. Right. Granted, to some extent, you're going to have to do that in the nature of government as long as you have borrowing, but beyond a certain point, it becomes tyrannous. And it's beyond that point that the present system allows our political structure to move too easily. How much, uh, take for instance, how much is the purchasing power of Federal Reserve notes lost since World War II? About 90%. You think that hasn't had some consequence in terms of redistribution of wealth, in terms of the way the economy has developed? Of course it has. The average person doesn't see, doesn't see it. He can't follow the lines of cause and effect, 
but it's there, and his life is quite a bit different from what it would have been if that hadn't occurred. Purchasing power? Monetization of debt? Inflation? What do we mean by all these terms? Terms we may have heard many times, but still fail to connect the dots. Are you confused? If so, you're not alone. Inflation, I think, is a bad word, because really, we think of inflation as rising prices. But in reality, what's happening, prices are not going up. It's that the value of the dollar or the monetary unit is going down. That's what's really happening if we understand the process. And it's a tax, therefore. Our lost purchasing power, the, what we have to pay more for a bag of groceries today than we did five years ago, comes out of our pocket, comes out of our earning capacity. That is value which we should have, but it's been taken from us through a process that we call inflation, but in reality, it's a hidden tax. Inflation is the result of being able to create money out of nothing. And that is the power we have given to the Federal Reserve System. Therefore, we can say that the, in, the Federal Reserve System is the agency of a hidden tax called inflation. Since the early 1900s, almost no one talks about the country's banking system anymore. What happened? There was a shooting, then there was nothing. Yet our money, like water, is one of the most important commodities we have. More than that, the quality of our money affects the productivity of every man, woman, and company in America. As time goes on, people figure out better ways of doing things, better ways of making products, cheaper and faster. For instance, one farmer can now grow food for thousands of people, whereas he used to be able to feed only his family. Thus, everything should be getting cheaper because the supply of everything has been growing faster than the demand. This is true even though the population has been growing as well. Unfortunately, this is not what we observe. With the exception of a few industries, like the computer industry, and products we import from places like China, it seems that almost everything is getting more expensive, but oftentimes cheaper in quantity. How can this be? Over the decades, the productive energy of society seems to be getting siphoned off. Well, that's, it's hard to predict, but I, I certainly think it's possible because I think the financial bubble worldwide is something that uh, we have never experienced before. Uh, we've had tastes of that. But Alan Greenspan, in one way, is a genius, and in another way, he is an unbelievable threat to us. He's a, a genius in the sense that, in, technic, in, in a technical fashion, he's been able to keep this system of inflation together longer than anybody else has been able to, especially in this last go-around from 2000 on. With the collapse of the Nasdaq bubble, we really didn't have much of a recession because he immediately uh, started inflating massively, taking interest rates down to 1%. And now, of course, he's a little bit frightened about the bubble, and he's curtailing credit to some degree. But uh, the dollar has become the gold of the world. The, uh, the uh, world central banks have accepted the dollar as if it were gold. Greenspan claims that they have gotten the paper money to act as if it is gold, which 
I strongly disagree with and all the hard money people disagree uh, with, but uh, I believe he's incapable of creating this huge financial bubble and the world has not yet uh, seen what may come of this. So I suspect that uh, depending on when it comes and what we do, it could very well end up into a much worse situation than the Great Depression. But if the country decided, well, something has to be done and we went to a gold standard and limited the creation of credit, curtailed the power of the Fed, I think it would iron out all our difficulties when Argentina periodically would just quit inflating and maybe tie their currency to the, even the dollar. Price inflation went like from hundreds of percent per year down to 2% or 3%, so it's, it's rather rapid. So you would see an immediate benefit. You would iron out the severe swings in the business cycle, uh, the price problems would be diminished, but the one thing we'd have to give up, which to me would be a benefit, government would have to curtail spending because they can't tax the people enough to pay for all those bills. So we would have to curtail our spending. So that would be, to me, a tremendous boost to the American people and to the economy. At the same time, we gave sound money I mean, this would be fantastic. Within months, uh, there would be some people who would suffer from the adjustment period, but it might be the people who have benefited so much over these years. But the average person, the poor person, the jobs would become available. So it, it would not take a long, long time. What would take a long time is if we refuse to consider it and the problems get worse and we have a severe recession or depression and huge inflation and we do all the wrong things. That is what we should work so hard against. We must get rid of the fiat money system. How do you do that? Well, the first step, of course, the big step, the biggest imaginable step is for people to realize that they even have one. I mean, how many people walking up and down the streets that go into the, uh, the polls each year and elect their leaders, how many people know that we have a fiat money system? How are we going to change that unless we have an understanding, an educational foundation at the electoral level? So this is where we have to start. Because so many people in the U.S. are now semi-illiterate, thanks to the government-sponsored public school system, it may be possible to stimulate a discussion on the Federal Reserve only through films and TV shows. In many ways, film has replaced the written word for the masses. What is the Federal Reserve System? It's where they generate the money, and they keep the money, I think. <laughs> Federal Reserve System is a banking structure owned by the, uh, the banks and run by the government. No, I don't, I don't know much okay. about it. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's a system of balancing the flow of currency throughout the United States so that as banks need to have liquidity, they have it, and as they need to tighten up money, they tighten it up. Similar to what you had said earlier about having the reserves for when we go in a crisis or something and you need to have that actual backing, not just the dollar currency, because paper is paper, and if you don't have that gold or silver behind it, then it's just going to be paper. Oh, it was established in, uh, if, I, if I guessed, I'm not sure, 1913 perhaps, to establish st stability in the um, American financial system. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Um, what is the system? It 
it's a banking system that's uh, run by the government. Uh, a little, in, it's almost like a fourth branch, but it's run by the government, and it's uh, guaranteeing the, the uh, that banks will remain stable. And if they're not stable, they'll take it over. Um, a way of backing up the money. We, I don't know. Yeah. And what is the Federal Reserve System? Um, well, do you want Andrew Jackson's opinion of the Federal Reserve System or what? Your your opinion. Uh, I liked his. It's a bunch of organized crooks. Wow. Now that citizen is informed. Too bad everyone is not as aware of how far we have strayed from our founding principles. Well, the major problem you have not only with the Federal Reserve System but with any statutory structure that's unconstitutional is it doesn't square with the, what's called the Supremacy Clause. The Constitution, which has the Constitution and laws passed in pursuance thereof, that is, constitutional laws are the supreme law of the land. So obviously you have a statute that doesn't square with the Constitution, it's void. It is not a law, in fact. So the question then arises, well, how does that square with the oath of office of representatives, senators, judges? And the answer is it doesn't that when they come face to face with a statute that is in contradiction of the Constitution, they are to treat the Constitution as the supreme law and treat that statute as void. So that's number one. Here we have a system, the Federal Reserve System, that has all of these constitutional problems and everyone is essentially looking in the opposite direction. So that doesn't square with the oath of office. And one would think that the president being the head of the executive department in which we find the Treasury, Department of Treasury, right, which interacts quite closely with the Federal Reserve, might have something direct to say about that. And then, of course, the president has a specific constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and the supreme law of the land is the Constitution. So you would expect, on top of all of this, that he would be saying, wait a minute, if the Constitution doesn't square with the Federal Reserve Act in one or more ways, then I should be giving directives to the Secretary of the Treasury to take certain kinds of action to deal with that. And, of course, we see exactly the opposite. We see the Federal Reserve people, usually the chairman of the Federal Reserve, comes to Congress, and he tells Congress directly, and usually tells the president, at least indirectly, here's how monetary policy is going to be implemented. So the Federal Reserve is the tail that's wagging the dog when we have all of these questions that it may not be legitimate at all in whole or in part. If you want to see the way power goes in the system or the way the laws are corrupted, follow the money, and the Federal Reserve is a huge agency for the creation of money. If you study monetary history uh, throughout thousands of years, you will find out that paper money has been tried many, many times and it never succeeds. It always ends badly. The question is, is when will the dollar end badly? Will it be next year or in five years or ten years? I'm convinced it will end unless we do the right things and that is restore soundness to the money, re put restraints on our government, uh, either strictly uh, uh, curtail the power of the Fed or get rid of the Fed. Uh, that will be the only way you can save the dollar. But if we continue to do what we're doing now, we will eventually destroy the dollar. Throughout history, as governments grow, they limit the individual's rights. The same thing happened in the Roman Empire. We know this from history, but we also know it from Shakespeare's wonderful play, Julius Caesar. As we start moving toward a bigger and bigger government, it's going to mean that the individual no longer has the right to own his property, the right to do what he wants, the right to live freely, the right to worship as he wants, the right to speak as he wants. The government starts to tell us what 
to do. Most of the time they think they're telling us what to do in their best interest, but the trouble is that government, as Adam Smith pointed out, John Locke pointed out, as the great thinkers of all time have always pointed out, don't really know what's right to do. Government often makes the wrong choices because it doesn't understand the consequences of its actions. So even when it doesn't desire to be a nefarious force, to be a dark force, it often is. The problem that we have is the result of legislation. Congress has to make fundamental changes in the present system. I don't think that it's possible to impose from the top down even the constitutional system because no one out there now is used to using gold and silver as their money. So what needs to be done is to create a competitive system of currencies. Leave the Federal Reserve System there. Slowly, over six months or a year, take away some of its legal privileges, its legal tender privilege, its privilege is the only medium to pay government taxes, so forth and so on. And over on this side, create a gold and silver system. And then you will have competition between the two, the paper money price structure and the gold and silver price structure. And it will be a competition. What happened is in this competition, gold and silver would win out because in competition, the free market usually wins out over governmental intervention and special privileges. And that's the reason we have governmental intervention and special privileges, to keep the free market from winning out. And that's why they go to government to ask for legal privileges, all right? So, that's the first problem. Now the second problem is I don't see that happening through Congress because there are just too many loggerheads in Congress to get the thing started. So my suggestion is that it begin in some state, a small state, a state that probably has a certain amount of its taxes that it can hypothecate to gold. And if the system worked and more and more people were asking, then the state could expand the areas of taxation and bring more people into it. And eventually you would, if it worked, you would see the whole state, the state's monetary system, the government, state government, would be on a gold system. And then I would think as well, you'd begin to see that spreading into the economy. Now, if that were to happen, then I think other states would look at this and say, well, that makes sense. Let's begin to move in that direction. You could look at it essentially as a monetary insurance policy. They don't have to go beyond 10%, but 10% gold holding is perfectly prudent. And if something were to happen in the economy, if there were to be a monetary crisis, banking crisis, then the state could rapidly expand the system because people would know how it operates. But the idea is to get the mechanism, as it were, on the table so that people can see how it works, why it works, what its benefits are. They don't have to be afraid of it. And arguments along the lines of there's not enough gold and silver in the world to do this will you know, that kind of thing will be uh, shown to be fallacious. Concerned citizens should be asking themselves questions. Like, why do you feel like you're on a treadmill that's constantly running faster? Hey. Why does it now take a two-income family to make ends meet, thus preempting women from their traditional role of providing stay-at-home childcare? Why do we see a never-ending expansion of government, even though our elected officials endlessly promise to reduce it? Where does the government get the funds to wage perpetual war, yet fails to provide the basic protection citizens needed on September 11th? Why do rich people seem to be getting richer, 
while you and all your friends seem to be hardly making ends meet. Why does a first-class stamp now cost you nearly 40 cents when it used to cost only 5 cents? Should a 90% loss of purchasing power be tolerated? Where does it end? It's easy to see where we're headed. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. If you follow a graph, and you can see that there are points on this graph, and they're going constantly in one direction, and they've been doing this for 50 years, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see where it's headed. Where this graph is headed is for total destruction of our monetary system. Our money will be totally worthless, and it'll probably be reissued in the form of some international currency, which will be equally worthless, but the value to these people is that once it's on an international basis, there's nowhere else to go. Right now, if you, if you don't like American dollars, you can buy uh, Japanese yen. If you don't like that, you can buy uh, Swiss francs. If you don't like that, you can move to whatever currency seems to be having a little better track record. Once there's an international monetary system in place, modeled completely and exactly after the Federal Reserve System, is exactly the same, then there's no place else to go, folks. You've had it. So that's where it's headed, and if we don't turn this thing around, I think we're going to be living in kind of a, uh, a modern serfdom. And we'll be serving masters, and they won't be living in the big castles uh, that we can see, at least, uh, and say, well, that's where the master lives up there, and we're tilling his field. Um, our masters will be the bankers and the politicians, and they'll live in big houses, but they won't be castles. But we'll be serving masters nevertheless, and we'll be thinking they're wonderful people without realizing that they are our masters. If the United States went back to constitutional money, it would be an amazingly wonderful event, because it wouldn't be just going back to constitutional money. In order for that to happen, that means you'd have to assume a groundswell of awakening on the part of the electorate. And they would understand not only what's happening in the monetary system, but what's happening across the board in our political system. I think we would have a great resurgence of prosperity and tranquility. That means that the electorate would have to be questioning a lot of other things in our society as well. And I think we would see an improvement across the board, and I look forward to that day. Americans need to stay on top of one of their most influential institutions, the Federal Reserve System. They need to start asking questions, not only of their representatives, but of no less than the President of the United States, whose sworn duty is to uphold the law of the land, especially the supreme law of the land, the U.S. Constitution.
Whether you call it commercial redemption or accept it for value, the Commerce Game Exposed is the book that will help you understand this process. The fact is, there is no lawful money in circulation. The explanation and details as to how this happened are enlightening, and the instructions concerning what one can do with this information are detailed and easy to understand. Utilizing this process is not for everyone, but learning how lawful money has been turned into commercial debt instruments should be of concern to everyone. The Commerce Game Exposed book is a good tool to learn the commercial nature of the New World Order. To order the Commerce Game Exposed, go to www.theamericanvoice.com or call 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050. Talk show host Terry Anderson, known from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles for articulating the popular rage, sat down with Californians for Population Stabilization to discuss the impact illegal immigration has had on black Americans. Anderson, who grew up in South Central Los Angeles and lives there still today, says that blacks in particular have suffered at job sites and in classrooms as a result of explosive illegal immigration. As he likes to say, if you ain't mad, you ain't paying attention. The new threat in this new millennium is politicians, mostly Democrats, but some of these rotten bastards happen to be Republicans also, but mostly Democrats, who are willing to not only look the other way, but are taking a proactive stance in making sure that the laws are not enforced under any circumstances. One of the most vile, heinous, anti-American representations of the new lawlessness is Speaker of the House Representative Nancy Pelosi. She is two accidents away from being the President of the United States, and recently she said that the enforcement of our current immigration laws are, quote, un-American, unquote. Unbelievable. Uh, I've lived in South Central L.A. my whole life. Uh, I saw the deterioration due to the illegal alien invasion. And one day I started listening to talk radio, and it happened to be George Putnam, who we all know. And... Uh, I kind of thought I was the only person involved in this. Well, not involved. I was the only person who felt this way. Thought I was by myself, and I heard people call his show just as angry as I was. And I got more involved in talk radio. I, I looked around the neighborhood. I saw the, the, the denseness. Ten, twenty people living in a two-bedroom house. Four and five cars at each house. Uh, corn growing in the front yard. Chickens, goats in yards. This is all the stuff we never had when I was growing up there in the 50s and 60s. And all of a sudden we had it. I knew something was wrong. And then I got kind of uh, aware of things when I saw the amnesty of 1986. I said, I was a very non-political guy. But even as non-political as I was, I said, this ain't going to work. Because if they do this, more will come. And that's what happened. Very slow in the 50s, almost non-existent. Uh, in the 60s, it began to change basically from a white culture to a black culture. And then all of a sudden, in the late 70s, early 80s, it started to change to an, what I thought at that time was an immigrant culture. I later found out it was illegal aliens. And then it became very fast-paced. From, I would say, 85 until the present, present, it has just been unbelievably fast. Well, right now, if you're black in South Central L.A., you can't get work. I'm not, there are people working. But if you go to McDonald's, you're a 15, 16-year-old kid, you go to McDonald's for an after-school job, weekend job, summer job, they want you to be bilingual. 
bilingual to flip a hamburger, okay? Are there some black kids working in South Central in McDonald's and Jack in the Box? Yes, there are, but the majority are not. You will go into these places now that used to be all black kids working there are now all Hispanics with the one token black kid in there. Uh, construction work, non-existent for blacks, non-existent. I remember when they built the Magic Johnson Theater uh, owned by Sony and Magic Johnson. Uh, it was an all-white crew building this movie theater in the Crenshaw Mall. Black construction workers got very angry picketed, went there and said, we want at least 50% of these jobs, which was correct. And they got 50% of the jobs. Now, you've got all these black construction workers out of jobs with no work, and every construction site now is all Hispanic, mostly illegal alien, and no black politician is saying a word. Even the janitors are becoming non-existent blacks. The only place that I've seen black folks still have a strong foothold, and that's slipping away, School janitors, L.A. Unified, okay, and bus drivers, L.A. Unified bus drivers, that Unified School District. That's the only place I still see a lot of blacks working. And the, the ticket agency to write your parking tickets is still predominantly black. Every other aspect of, of, of labor in South Central L.A. is now Hispanic. Well, you know, when it was whitey, you want half of his. But when it's another, and I hate this word, but I'll use it because you asked me. When it's another minority, unquote, then it's okay. As long as the minority's getting to work, black folks say, well, it's okay. And I say black folks, I mean black leaders. The black rank and file, you talk to them in the grocery store, you go to Pep Boys and talk to them, you go to the bank and talk to them, they will tell you they're fed up with this invasion. But the leaders will not let the public know that. There's two reasons why the, the, the black construction workers won't pick it. Number one, it's futile now, okay? They just know there's just no way they're going to get a job anyway. The other reason is the, 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 the numbers have been so decimated. We've been diluted now. A lot of blacks have moved out of that area. They've moved out to Lancaster, uh, uh, Palmdale, Moreno Valley. They've also moved back down south where the, where the parents got a plot of land or something, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. They moved down there. So the numbers are down now, so they don't have any strength. The other thing is the third reason. The third reason is because of stigma. They're afraid of being labeled a racist. They, they are scared to death of that word. And they figure if they speak up, they're going to be labeled. Whenever you hear a black person speak up on this invasion issue, they'll always do a disclaimer first. I, I, I'm not against anybody. I like everybody. I love everybody. But it's always that way. They always do the disclaimer first, and then they say what's on their mind. I was at a, an event that, that Bernard Parks was there at the time. He was a, what he's city councilman now. He was city councilman then. Yeah. He, he's in the 8th District, okay, which is very near where I live. There are construction projects in the same block where his office is that are all Hispanic, and he doesn't say one word about it. He told us at the meeting that night over in West L.A. that he, he's, he, he was very adamant that 90% of construction workers in the city, not county, city of Los Angeles, were white. And everybody in this meeting asked him, what are you smoking? Yeah. Because, you know, they wanted some. Where, where is this at? Because, number one, there are zero white construction workers in L.A., and it just doesn't happen. Secondly, to even say that about the county would have been ridiculous, but the city is just really, really stupid. And he actually said that that night, and everybody just laughed out loud. He's, he's an idiot. He really is. I have a theory, okay, and I believe it's correct, and I've done a lot of study on this. I've been to Washington, D.C., talked to all of them. It started out as get whitey, okay? 
Start out as Get Whitey. We're going to bring in these other, here's this word again, it keeps popping up. We're going to bring in this other group of minorities who are going to dilute Whitey's power, okay? They're going to dilute Whitey's power. And then as the group started coming in, it became a tide that couldn't be reversed. So then it became, well, let's be nice to them and maybe they'll vote for us. Well, they did in some cases until they got one of their own to, to run for office. And I say one of their own, I'm not knocking all Hispanic Americans because I love Hispanic Americans. I'm saying that a lot of Hispanic Americans are race-based, just as Maxine Water, Waters and Diane Watson and Jackson Lee and the rest are race-based. They believe in black only. Well, these Hispanic leaders believe in the same thing, and they side with illegal aliens. Our problem being black, we don't have any illegal aliens to side with that's going to give us power. But the Hispanics do. And then it became with the black caucus, well, wow, look what's happening. But if we speak up now, we'll sound like the white Republicans, so we better not. So it went from get whitey to maybe they'll vote for us to, wow, the water's boiling. Shamil Shaw is a very tragic case. We've got other cases, uh, Highland Park, where three or four blacks were killed just for being black. Uh, Canoga Park, where the LAPD gave a vocal warning to black folks, do not go to Canoga Park because your life could be in danger. Harbor City, man was walking his daughter to the grocery store one evening, a Mexican guy shot him in the back because he was black. The, the young girl, 204th Street, was killed because she was black. My point is this, there are sections of Los Angeles where blacks cannot go. If a black person goes to East LA and tries to buy a house, they will kill him, they will burn him out. It is, it's happened, but there's, Hispanics living in all the previous black projects, the Jordan Downs, Nickerson Gardens, Imperial Courts, Pueblo del Rio, all of these projects, housing projects, that were once 100% black now are 50-50, and no Hispanic has been attacked because he was Hispanic. My point is, there's a place where we can't go, but there's no place they can't go. What do you attribute the uh, reluctance of the Latino leadership in the city of Los Angeles up to, including Mayor Villarosa, to not speak more candidly and more aggressively about this issue? Very simple. They don't have to. Why would they speak up? They're winning. Their numbers are taking over. They're, they're going to be the 80% Los Angeles someday. Uh, they're taking over. Why would they speak up on our behalf? There's no reason to. They don't need us anymore. Villaraigosa can get elected without us now. I, I go out into the community. Wherever I'm at, I, I ask questions. I don't tell them who I am. And that's the thing about being on radio. People don't really know what you look like. But I go out into the black community, and I talk all the time to people. And I, you know, I may be in line somewhere. I say, man, what do you think about so-and-so and so-and-so? Man, they'll turn around and say, man, I thought I was the only one. They all say the very same thing. We're in bad shape in this city. This used to be a uh, multicultural city. It no longer is. There's no diversity in Los Angeles City anymore. And those same black people will tell you that they've got a relative who can't get a job. They've got a neighbor who plays loud mariachi music. They've got a neighbor who grows corn in his front yard. They'll tell you about their child in school who's in bilingual education and not learning a damn thing. They, they'll tell you all of this, every one of them. But if you ask them to stand up and come to a rally, they won't do it because they're afraid. I go to these churches. These churches have uh, town hall meetings. And I've been to a lot of these town hall meetings. Every time they have them, they'll bring in Tony Mohammed and uh, Earl Ofari Hutchinson and some of these other, quote, black leaders, unquote, self-appointed black leaders, they'll bring them in, and they are the only ones who take the pro-illegal alien position. And sometimes the minister of the church will. You know, that's about the money in the plate. But the black constituency that comes to these meetings is always 95 
to 99% in favor of deportation of every one of them. And it's not just the black kids. No, no. The, Ameri the American Hispanics who don't speak Spanish, oh, they're, they're in trouble too. You know, they, they, com they complain. They call this radio show. They come in here and, and, and talk to me. I get emails from them all the time. The, the problem with the education system is a few years ago, we were closing schools in this, in this city because of under-enrollment, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Population had slowed down. They were combining schools, and every once in a while they would close one. We just built 165 new schools, 165 new schools. They were after 165,000 classroom seats, okay? All for what? It wasn't for the American kids. Americans aren't having a lot more kids. These were for an influx of people new to this country who happen to be Hispanic, happen not to speak any English, and happen to be in the country illegally. That's what happened. Or the, the, the illegal aliens came here and had babies here. My great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was a slave in the state of Louisiana. Obviously, I never met him. But... The ancestry handed down to me by those who came before me, my aunts and uncles and my father, and they all told me the stories of what it was like because it was passed on to them. And one of the greatest moments in our history was the day we were emancipated. Uh, we were emancipated with the Civil War, but we still had to have a, uh, we had to have something passed that said officially, we were no longer property, we were now citizens, and anything born to us was citizens. That was written for my ancestors, okay. Having said that, we've got a new misinterpretation of it that everybody from the world has used to come here and have babies and make them American citizens. It is wrong, it is a misinterpretation, and it angers me personally because it was written for my ancestors and now it's being misused and therefore used against me. I'm suffering from it now because of the influx of so many people and their and their progeny that they have once they get here. I'm suffering from that. My kids and my grandkids are going to suffer because they took an amendment meant for us and turned it around against us. That's outrageous. The media basically at large won't touch this issue as, as in any form. And when they do, it's always pro-illegal alien. When they do touch it as far as consequences to other people, it's alleged that this is hurting black folks. It's alleged that this did this. It's alleged that they're costing us tax dollars. It's never a fact that it's happening, even though they know it's a fact. The only avenue of media uh, where we have a fair shake is talk radio, conservative talk radio. And even that sucks sometimes. Hannity, one of the most powerful people in this country, who could really do us a lot of good on this issue, and a guy that I would like to have a beer with. I think he's a nice guy. But Hannity sucks on this issue. All he talks about is the border, the border, the border, the border. There's more to the border. When's he going to do our show on what's happening to these communities, these kids that are getting murdered by illegal aliens, the fact that we can't get jobs, the fact that teenagers have to speak Spanish to flip a hamburger. Where's the Hannity show on that? Where's even a segment on that on his, radio, on his television program? You won't find it. O'Reilly, here's another part guy who, who tells us we're going to have to amnesty this 20, 25 million people. What is that? That These are lawbreakers, and you're saying, well, we have to amnesty them. We can't round them all up. We don't have to round them up. Make enough, enough effort to enforce the laws on the books. You make it where they can't educate, they can't medicate, they can't incarcerate. Make it where they can't buy a house, they can't open a business, they can't rent an apartment, and I guarantee you they'll go home. What about the, 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 the janitors in West L.A., Century City, Beverly Hills, who were making black janitors, some, some white, who were making $12 an hour 15 years ago? 
that was great money. That was great money. All of a sudden, the, the, the owners, the building owners got together in collusion, not, broke the union, uh -huh. hired Hispanic illegal aliens from Mexico and El Salvador. They came in, they said, we, we're going to, you guys, minimum wage was five and a quarter, I believe. He says, uh, we'll give you five and a quarter fine. They went and told the black and white employees, we'll give you five and a quarter. You can keep your job. Well, if a guy's making $12 an hour, he's got, he's got insurance payments, house note, kids, car payment, all set up around 12 bucks. $5 an hour will kill him. He can't, he can't survive, so they lost their jobs. So guess what happened? The illegal aliens came in, got all the jobs, and then went on strike. And then messy Jesse Jackson marched downtown L.A. holding a broom in his hand, wow. talking about justice for janitors. I mean, unbelievable. He, he, he's supposed to be Mr. Black. He's supposed to be, I'm so for the black community. These guys just put his people out of work, Americans, out of work, and he marches with a mop in his hand talking about justice for janitors. I think it's going to get worse, but I think one thing that might save us, and I hate to use this as a savior, is this economic situation. Uh, I think that's going to slow things down. I think amnesty will be a hard sell now with so many people out of work. It was a stupid idea. In good times, in bad times, it's absolutely outrageous. But in Los Angeles itself, uh, I don't think we're done, but I think unless we get some more American thinking back into this, this city, and, and, and less left-wing, liberal, uh, idiotic ideologies that are taking place where you give everything away to anybody who wants it, whether they're legal or illegal. I think we're, we're sunk pretty much for quite a while. As we progressed and the races came together, we started to drift off into this black pride, black awareness thing, which I never really got, but I saw it and liked it and didn't like it. It brought us together in one way, but it also kept us from being full Americans. But we never ever talked about taking over a country. We never talked about, we had no Aslan. We never talked about reclaiming a part of America for our race or for some previous country we came from or continent. We never flew a foreign flag. We never did any of that. And that's what angers me now. These, these young Hispanic kids now, they, if you ask them, kids that are second and third generation uh, uh, Californians, Americans, will tell you they're Mexican. I'm Mexican. I hear them say it all the time. Wasn't your mother born? Yeah. Wasn't your mother and father's mother born? Yeah. But I'm Mexican. I'm not American. I'm Mexican. But when you've got a country, and I'm not against immigration. I, I, I want to cut it way back. But I think we need some fresh blood every once in a while. But... When you have this many people coming this fast illegally, guess what? They don't have to. They don't have to assimilate. They can keep their own 100% culture. Same culture they ran away from, they can drag here. Terry Anderson's show can be heard every Sunday night in Los Angeles on KRLA 870 AM from 9 to 10 PM. Other stations carrying his show can be found at theterryandersonshow.com. For more information on how you can help, Go to www.capsweb.org. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its 
gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Wednesday, July 1st, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. Seems like it should be a Friday today. It's been a long week. It probably is on the other <laughs> side of the international date line. It should be in Greece. Uh-huh. <laughs> it should be in Greece. If anything, it should be something in Greece, but we'll talk about that later because we know it isn't. And uh, But let's get right to the market report today. Wendy Wilson is joining us today, and I believe we are going to be talking about blood. But first, gold artificial today. Artificial blood. Not artificial real blood, artificial blood. Artificial blood. Well, gold today was uh, the bloody day in the markets for gold, down 450. At 11.69, you have silver down 10. At fifteen sixty seven, platinum managed up five bucks at one oh eight seven and palladium took a whoo, three and a quarter percent increase up twenty two at seven hundred dollars. USDX today up seven four point seven four at ninety six twenty five and well they beat crude oil down into the gutter. Down 2.53 at 56.94, and I have an inkling I know what that was about. In the paper markets today, they were all higher. Hey, it's July 4th weekend. What do you expect the weekend before a holiday? Everything's going to be rosy. You know, Obama's rating so much for him being a lame duck this year, or this, you know, his last term, and uh, his rating 50%. He's at 50. It's like, how does that work? It's all due to same way the U.S. dollar index works, the same way the price of gold <laughs> and the Dow Jones works. Have people yeah. adjust these things, and it's all actually they said it was benefit, the, ladies and gentlemen. You will be happier if you accept these numbers. Actually, they said it was because of his his uh, the way he manages the way he has been managing managing the racial conflicts. It's his, uh, oh. Yes. And and then also the economy. 
The Dow was up 139 points today at 17,759. The NASDAQ up 26 at 5,013. The S&P up 14 at 2,077. 10-year yield, 2.42%. Euro 111, down 0.84. And Germany was up. There's no reason why these markets were up. London was up uh, one and a third percent. Germany, two, almost... uh, Two and a two and a fifth, I guess, two point one five percent. Hong Kong was up over one percent, and um, so an interesting day in the markets. But again, it's it is an interesting day, day in the, in the markets. Market. Mm-hmm. Kind of so, got Mr. Um, Rogers' neighborhood going on here, neighborhood market. But uh, so let's get to Wendy Wilson, and uh, she's joining us for the first uh, segment on the program. Al, uh, good afternoon, Wendy. Oh, good afternoon, Melody. Hello, Al. Hello, Wendy. We're going to talk about artificial blood today? Absolutely. I think it's a good day to talk about that. (laughs) Um, You know, because we kind of had an explosion in artificial products over the last hundred years. I mean, we have artificial conception with the test tube babies. We have artificial turf football uh, is played on. We have artificial intelligence, artificial trans plantable body parts. Uh, We have GM foods, artificial sweeteners, and most recently now we're coming into the realm of artificial blood. So um, blood typically is the life source. It brings healing to the tissues. uh, It supports our metabolism, as you know. It is a vehicle that transports the life-sustaining fluids and nutrients. It also contains some tissue as well as water to support all the cells and carry away debris and harmful toxins. So why would they want to mess with that, right? Well, they can make a science. I know. Science has been tinkering with making artificial blood since the 1600s. I didn't know that, but I thought that was interesting. Um, It is often referred to in science as the oxygen therapeutic or hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier called the HBOC and also a parafluorocarbon. About 33% of Americans require blood transfusions on a regular basis to save their lives. And we're told that artificial blood, they say, is necessary due to insufficient blood donors to keep up with the demand of the 4.5 million Americans that need blood. So what's the difference between natural blood manufactured by our body and the artificial blood made in laboratories? Well, according to the U.S. National Library of Medicine and the National Institutes of Health, artificial blood does not fulfill the same functions as natural blood. Here is their statement, which appeared in the 2008 Journal of Critical Care Medicine. It says this, while true blood serves many different functions, artificial blood is designed for the sole purpose of transporting oxygen and carbon dioxide throughout the body. So apparently... Yeah, apparently there's lots of ways to manufacture artificial blood. They could use petrochemicals to make synthetic blood. They can use isolated chemicals, or they could use recombatant biochemical technology to splice pieces of DNA from any species, and even including bacteria, and they create blood with it. So this artificial means that lab- we, this, this means that we can finally get blood out of a stone or maybe out of a turnip? Is that what we're doing here well, I'll leave it to science, right? Yeah? Yeah. But uh, artificial laboratory-made blood for human blood transfusions 
basically they're taking some of it from stem cells in ambiblical cord blood or from a, adult donor blood, and then they manipulate it in the lab to force it to mature into a functioning red blood cell. Now, this is what we're told um, uh, it's able to deliver oxygen and carry away carbon dioxide, but here's a quote from, uh, let's see, this is Dr. Suman Sakar. He's of the Department of Anesthesiology at IMS Baramis Hindu University in India. He says this, artificial blood can be produced in different ways using synthetic production, chemical isolation, or recombated biotechnology, te biochemical technology. His synthetic hemoglobin-based products are produced from hemoglobin harvested, are you ready, from E. coli bacteria. Mm. End of quote. End of quote. Wow. I mean, wouldn't that be great to be in the hospital and you're getting a blood transfusion? And by the way, that's made from E. coli. Well, at least it's not made from spiders. They're making some sort of, I don't know, they're combining spider genes with goats to make, instead of milk, they're getting spider silk. I'm not uh, well, I know they already got lambs that glow in the dark with, you know, some sort of, um, you know, jellyfish thing. Uh, they're supposed to be not for sale. You know, they're cloned sheep. They glow in the dark, though. They're, they got jellyfish, you know, fluorescence. <laughs> Can you imagine? Your sheep, you're counting <laughs> sheep at night, and they're jumping over the moon, and they're green, you know? <laughs> yeah, okay. I get it. You'll be able to see them more clearly, though, to count them. Oh, you got to yeah. give them that. Okay. Well, let's talk about the clinical trials real quick. There, there are many different versions of the artificial blood in clinical trials, um, but none is really being used right now in hospitals in the United States yet. But it's estimated that we could see artificial blood products on the market as soon as 2022. And scientists at the University of Bristol, Cambridge, and Oxford feel that artificial blood that they're working with right now will be ready for consumer use within five years. So according to their lead researcher, Dr. Nit Watkins of the National Health Service Blood and Transplant, he's the director there, he said synthetic blood is comparable to real blood. He states artificial blood is real. But the National Science Service announced that human trials of artificial blood will commence by 2017. So they plan to transfuse a few teaspoons of artificial, artificial blood into several volunteers to watch for any adverse reactions. And they also want to see how long the artificial blood will survive in a human recipient. But researchers feel the benefits of this artificial blood will far outweigh any risk. They say the benefits are that the blood is free of infections like HIV or hepatitis, well, aside from that E. coli, right? And also it's only going to be um, sterilized blood. They're going to make sure they sterilize it. So, but you know what, Al, Melanie, this blood will only be as clean as, and as clean as microscopes can detect anything because, remember, polio vaccines in the 50s were supposed to be sterile, but when they were reexamined by the microscopes in the 70s, it revealed that they were loaded with infectious pus and disease that the microscopes in the 50s couldn't detect. So, FYI. Now, another yeah, benefit they stated for the artificial blood is that it has a longer shelf life. It requires no refrigeration compared to real blood that has to be used within 42 days and requires special storage. Now, another advantage is that regardless of your blood type, Al, this artificial blood is universal. It can be used on anybody. That's anybody. interesting. 
Okay. I can see, so, you know, I mean, I can see the advantages to it or the need for it in some circumstances. You get in a car accident, you need blood, you don't have to worry about blood type, you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, supply per se. In emergency circumstances, I can see where this can be helpful. But I wonder, how does your how do your kidneys filter out this artificial blood? Are they able to filter that out of your out of your bloodstream yeah. and, and and pass it off? Uh, do you know? Yeah. Well, see, that's what they want to check. See, so mm-hmm. hospitals, you know, you, it'll it'll be interesting to see if hospitals go strictly artificial blood and they drop that type and cross match test. You know, uh, and they also they also state now that artificial blood has no immunological reactions, but you know, if that statement were true, they wouldn't have a need for a five-year human trial to give teaspoon-sized doses to check for reactions if that were the case. But um, another thing to remember now is oxyglobulin is a synthetic blood product that's used in veterinarian medicine, and it's been approved for use in the United States and Europe, and they think it also will be useful for humans, too. So they, they it, it'll probably be a real close uh, synthetic match to what they're using for pets. So um, now they say artificial blood doesn't... Now that is interesting. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. What's the right. probability that this artificial blood will not only work regardless of type in all people, will it also work in animals? Yeah. What's the chances, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you may be able to get, you need artificial blood to get it out of the veterinarian. He's got some. Yeah. You can get the same yeah, stuff. They get the, the, uh, the cows and the pigs, goats, sheep, cat, dog. Well, how about this? You know, how about this? You're a pet owner. You're in an accident. You get a blood transfusion. You got artificial blood. Then your pet has, you know, some anemia, and then you give him some of your blood. <laughs> you know, I can donate to my pet. No. Okay, never mind. It's no, I nuts. get it. I know. I get it. And they can donate to you. Uh, yeah. Well. Okay, here's the thing to consider, though. Um, Real blood is composed of red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. So when blood has these elements, it's able not only to carry oxygen to organs and cells, it also can remove toxins and debris. And artificial blood does not perform like this real blood. And what happens is they're worried that the blood vessels of the body will begin to tighten, which increases the risk of high blood pressure. Capillaries can also collapse and strokes can occur. Heart attack could happen as well as death could be the result. And this is the reason why artificial blood hasn't been on the market before because these were all real adverse effects. And uh, less severe adverse reactions, they think, are swelling and fever. So it's, it's side effects like this that have kept the artificial blood, you know, in the lab and not in the OR. So um, now the Journal of the American Medical Association reported in 08 that they had 16 human trials using five different types of artificial blood. And out of 3,500 patients, there was a three-fold increase in heart attacks compared to the control group that only used natural donated blood from humans. Now, get this, later analysis of that research made scientists change their conclusions from the negative results, stating that that was misleading, that they reasoned that artificial blood varied in its benefits and risks, and some experienced serious effects and some didn't. So kind of similar reasoning for the use of toxic drugs that tend to, you know, kill people and vaccines that, but you know, make money. give us. Yeah. 
Well, let's get to that money question real quick because I know we're running out of time. Um, the average cost of real blood transfusion was in 2012 was $18,000. So that's about 180 to $600 per pint hospital cost depending on location. So if you're in Boulder, Colorado, you pay the $600 mark or the hospital does for that pint. Europe is really embracing the artificial blood. Uh, BioPure estimates the cost of their artificial blood will be $1,000 per pint. And it's not clear if that's hospital or patient cost. $1,000 per pint? Yeah, <clears throat> if, that's patient, if that is patient cost, then the hospital is paying about $100 a pint for mm. that artificial blood. But we're told that one pint of artificial blood may be equal to two or three pints of natural blood. Now, Dr. Pierre LaFoley reports from Brown Biomed that the cost of the artificial blood will come down as the manufacturing process becomes more refined. So um, also, if you're on artificial blood, you're going to require a little bit more monitoring at, at first. So that's going to push up medical costs. So they estimate that artificial blood products will net the industry a minimum of $7.6 billion in the U.S. alone compared to just $75 million profit from using natural blood. Oh, gee, I wonder if this is a motivation. You don't think so, do you? You're going to make uh, a billion, let make me several think. billion let me think. as let opposed me think. to a few million? Let me think. Let me just, you know, God said um, tough, money is the answer to all things. Money is the answer to all math. things, Lord. Said, so math, I'll go with understand that. It. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know we're out of time, but, you know, uh, I think it is the money. I really do. Personally, you know, there's there's uh, herbs that will build up the blood if you're anemic in 24 hours. If you juice raw beets and drink raw beet juice, it's the minerals in the beets that help your blood hold on to more oxygen and build it up. So um, check that out. I would say check that out. I'd say one other question is this. If it doesn't have any white blood cells in it, mm-hmm. and the white blood cells are used to destroy I know. Tox- uh, toxins in, in your body, cancer right. cells and so on, is there going to be likely be an increase, a loss of immunity and an increase in disease? That's if a you're good using question, Al. That's a good question. Now, if your body, if your body cannot replace those white blood cells, I don't know what the artificial blood it may hinder that manufacturing process. Who knows? Or there may be something in the blood that gobbles up those white blood cells. Ah, this is a big test, you know. Yeah, and know. they're just. Listen, and they must have done these tests in the past because they've rejected this thing in the past. They must have done tests. The tests yeah. couldn't have been too successful, or they wouldn't be giving people just a couple of teaspoons of this stuff right. as to end the new tests. They know Absolutely. this stuff is dangerous. We'll see what happens. I, Wendy, why don't you give us some contact information? Absolutely. Uh, folks at Apothecary Herbs have a blood cleanse formula. If you want to just boost up your blood system, you can check that out. The website is thepowerherbs.com, or you can give them a call for a catalog at 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663. Everybody have a great 4th of July. We'll see you later. Happy 4th of July, Wendy. Thank you. We'll look forward to talking to you next Thursday or next Wednesday. Excuse me. That's Wendy Wilson from thepowerherbs.com, 866-229-3663. Give her a call. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, and we'll be back in a moment.
If you have a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kits. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival and programs brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver. For all your gold and silver coin needs, what's next, Melody? Well, I came across a couple of articles today involving Iran and, uh, you know, oil. There was a lot of pressure on oil today down two and a half, 56.94, and this could be one of the possibilities since this article was released. How the U.S. oil companies have been largely blocked from the country since 1979. And as these sanctions uh, over the last couple of years, uh, once they begin to loosen up, it, it allow these U.S. companies to go in there. Now, Russia's Gazprom and China's CNPC, they have developed some of the oil and gas projects, uh, but they, too, have run into some trouble, uh, some disagreements with the Irani- Iranian government um, over various things. So as these nuclear deal talks continue, uh, you might see uh, some of these sanctions being removed so that the uh, oil companies could rush in. Now, the deadline, while the uh, July 1st was the deadline, 
I guess there's a new deadline for these talks uh, as of, uh, I think, July 7th. But um, what's interesting, so they have a lot of oil there. What I don't get is it makes you wonder the real reason why these sanctions are being lifted from Iran. And because if you have more oil in the market, you'd assume the prices would go lower. So it would hurt more of the production, even more so than what we've had since the Saudis have lowered the price of oil. So it would pretty much wipe out any production here in the States. And is the, the reason the U.S. is working with Iran, is that one of the reasons why the Saudis have left the oil prices drop to these real low levels uh, because they don't like Iran. And uh, so it's, uh, and then you have to also ask yourself, well, do they need Iran's oil? Because I guess they have uh, quite a bit of it uh, to be uh, pulled out of the ground. A lot of their oil is processed onshore. And uh, so there's areas in the Persian Gulf that they can go into and so forth. We know Iran has or does sell their oil in various currencies. So is the U.S. looking to find a new petrodollar? Uh, you, know, you know, that's an interesting point on these negotiations. Mm-hmm. I wonder what effort, if any, is being made to get Iran to agree to sell their, their crude oil only for dollars. Um, and, you know, the only other reason I could think, uh, you know, because they do have a lot, Saudis could be at maybe they really do have peak oil. You know, that's kind of debatable. You can see, you can debate that both sides, whether they have peak oil and uh, so forth. But, I mean, it's truly hurting our production. You know, so what was the last couple of years all about? Well, it really raises questions about what would the price of crude oil be right now if we had never sanctioned Iran? Mm -hmm. I mean, to some degree, it may be that the price of crude oil has been globally overpriced for the past, for most of the past decade or more, simply because Iran has been taken out of the out of the international market, or at least restricted in the international market, um, they come back in, and maybe uh, it, it makes you wonder what's the price of oil going to be a year from now. Likely to be up or down. Well, if they come on with, uh, uh, now it will take a little bit of time to develop these new large oil and gas fields. Uh, but still, Iran remains one of the few places that has an enormous upside. The, uh, they estimate that half of Iran's oil production comes from fields that are more than 70 years old. So look at all that oil they have in there to, to come out. So I would think that prices would be lower. Again, it depends on how this all plays out with the Saudis, because, uh, you know, the Saudis and Iran aren't best buddies. And, uh, you know, the Saudis need a certain amount of, of that oil uh, bought from them, because, you know, they've turned their society into a socialist society where, you know, all the people there are getting money from the oil and so forth. They live as fat cats. And, uh, you know, so they need that money, that constant inflow. Um, so it'll be interesting. To, my question is, why? Is, is it to the dollar? And there was another article out today uh, about Iran where it says it has recovered part of its gold reserves frozen under international sanctions after an accord sealed on the sidelines of the nuclear negotiations with the world powers. Central Bank Chief uh, Valiola Sif, quoted by state news agency IRNA, 
said the accord covers the repatriation of a total of 13 tons of gold blocked in South Africa for the past two years. Three consignments have been returned to the central bank since the start of the week, the governor said, adding that the last was the delivery of four tons on Tuesday night. He said the gold was purchased earlier and kept in South Africa, but could not be transferred to Iran because of sanctions. This operation was the result of a compromise struck on the sidelines of Iran's negotiations in Vienna on its disputed nuclear program. The two sides have set a new target date of July 7th, as I mentioned, for the final accord. And according to Washington, around $100 billion of Iranian assets have been frozen across the world under the sanctions over its nuclear program and um, for its support of terrorist organizations. So they are getting their gold back. This is a sideline. You mean they're getting it back faster than Germany is getting its gold (laughs) back? Well, they only have 13 tons. Well, it doesn't matter. The most important point is their gold was stored in South Africa, Africa. but Germany's was stored in the United States. Part of it, yes. Get it right uh, back from South Africa. My point, the United States, it takes a few years longer. My point is here they're neg- making these, uh, lifting these sanctions before the negotiations are complete. Uh, good faith, I would say, um, lifting these sanctions. And again, you, you kind of wonder what really is going on uh, with Iran and the need uh, to get. You know, one of the things that's happening, I mean, it's almost impossible to figure some of this stuff out. And even the people in positions of power, you know, in many in many respects, they come up with a certain theory and they say, well, I think this would do this. I think this would have this effect. They don't know for a fact what they're doing is going to have the effect that they're hoping for. Right. All of this is being improvised. But one of the things that crosses my mind is the dollar has been rising on the dollar index over the last year. It's much, I don't know, it's 20 points higher than it was a year ago this time. It was 25, 28 points higher. It's not that much, but still, we've seen on the international market, we've seen dollar deflation. And that's bad for the government. They don't like dollar deflation because it causes the price of their debts and their borrowing costs to increase. It's bad for business in the United States, or at least it's bad for export business in the United States. Government doesn't like deflation. If they were to put more oil on the market, one of the, one of the consequences of this would probably be an increased inflation rate. The dollar would actually fall to some degree on the, on, on the U.S. dollar index. We'd probably see more inflation. It would be better for government, better for debtors, better for stimulating the economy, better for exporters. So you can sit back and wonder, is anybody, is is anyone trying to say, well, let's bring the rand, let's drop the sanctions, let them start producing oil, push the dollar down, it'll be better for the economy. Is that part of anyone's thinking or is it just my imagination? And that's all I have. I don't have any facts to support that idea. That's just conjecture, but it crosses my mind. But what we do know and what it is telling us is, you know, things are not all rosy. I don't think these oh. these uh, these negotiations would be going on just for the heck of it. You know, just for, you know, hey, boys, uh, you know, come on in. You join the party now. You know, there there's reasons. You're talking about the nuclear. Iran. Yes, there's reasons. Yeah, yeah. There's reasons why these uh, negotiations are going on. 
Well, of course, there's reasons. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, it's a deeper financial. I think it's a deeper financial reason. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. There's a reason here, and it's not just about whether or not we're going to get Iran to stop exactly producing nuclear fuel that uh, might be used potentially could be used to make bombs. I don't think that's all that's going on here. But, you know, there's other reasons, ulterior reasons, and blah blah blah. We'll watch and see what happens. Why do you think? that we've heard so little about the Iranian negotiations over the course of the last, I don't know, four or five months, really, I hardly heard a word. For six months or more prior, you know, six months or more ago, Israel was threatening to bomb Iran. Israel was protesting that this proposed deal was a bad deal, and Israel really had its, you know, its knickers in a knot over this thing. And we haven't heard anything about them. We haven't heard anything about anybody. Why do you suppose they've had so much silence on the Iranian negotiations? The same reason there's so much silence on the TPP. (laughs) People would be outraged. But I think there are a lot of things going on. They're just not getting publicized. I think there's another point. It may be they've known for months that Iran really doesn't want to close this deal. Some people think they're just stringing us along. They're just pretty, you know, extend and pretend. It's like, we'll just watch and see how long they can get the United States to go along with potential proposals that never will be that they don't intend to allow to happen. But something well, I mean, is, I, it, it, is it, these were important negotiations, and they've been completely out of the news. We've listened to Greece, 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 but we've had these, distractions. you know, this is supposedly over nuclear weapons. You'd think this is more important than Greece. You'd think it's at least as important, and yet we've heard almost nothing. Well, I think there there are reports with Kerry and and the negotiations and and so forth, but, uh, I mean, there's no reason why, I mean, if those sanctions are lifted, they're they're getting sanctions lifted without having to go through with the the deal. So, you know, they're going to try and get whatever they can. And, I mean, I did read an article where one of the, I don't know which type of a political name would be in their courts, you know, during these negotiations. But, you know, several of them, several of them cried out death to America, you know, and the bottom line comes to the Ayatollah. He he has the final say. And uh, so and I think that's you and know, he all doesn't these, appear to be positive no. about this. He appeared but, he, no, regards he wants it. his nuclear weapons. He's going to take it. He's going to go with, I mean. I don't even know that he wants nuclear weapons, and I don't know how, I mean, Iran has been around, it might be, no. it's one of the oldest countries on earth. It hasn't invaded anybody in centuries. I don't think Iran is an aggressive country that's inclined to use nuclear weapons. That might be an exaggeration. Maybe it's reliable, maybe it's not. But I think he's upset no. because they want, according to this deal, Iran has to allow inspectors to go into all of its military facilities. But they've already and, poo-pooed that. They, 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 I don't they, understand. You know, they, they want their. They're saying we don't want to go along with this. You're not going to. So I mean, they want them. they want their weapons, and they they don't. No, they want, want their along. secrecy because they. I can understand from Iranian perspective, if you're going to sit back and say, "Well, we'll let the Americans come in and inspect our military facilities whenever they want," if we're going to do that, what are the odds that the Americans can inspect Iranian? nuclear facilities and whatever they learn 
and not just nuclear facilities, but military facilities. And wow. whatever they learn won't go to Saudi Arabia, who doesn't like Iran, or won't go to Israel. I mean, our relationship with Saudi Arabia and Israel, our relationships with those two countries are so solid, it is not unreasonable for Iran to sit back and say, I'm not going to tell the United States all this. They'll just give it to the Israelis and the, and the Saudis. They've made it clear they want to bomb us. I can't imagine Iran would be that far advanced in their military. But I agree, you know, the U.S. speaks with forked tongue, so absolutely they, they could and would use it against them. I, I understand that. But um, I don't know. They have July 7th, so we'll see what happens when July 7th uh, comes around. But uh, I thought perhaps with, uh, you know, the oil, if they're closer to an agreement and perhaps their oil coming online, we could see lower oil prices. Maybe that's what hit oil today. And, of course, I thought it was interesting about the gold. Well, it is. Well, yeah. And one of the other things about it is as long as, the dollar keeps gaining value or is held up in the 95 range or whatever on the U.S. dollar index, gold isn't going to soar. On the other hand, if we if the oil was from Iran was turned loose, in theory, that would increase the pressure of inflation mm-hmm. on the dollar. If it did, price of gold is going to go up. Go up. Mm-hmm. So we'll watch and see. And here's uh, we're just about out of our, our segment here. You know... You have so so many of these people with just billions and billions of dollars, and all this money is all coming together. And to me, it is a way that these ultra-rich, these ultra, I mean, all their money goes to, you know, to, to help promote the globalism and, and to finish the New World Order. Here you have the Saudi Arabia's Prince Alawid bin Talal. He's pledged to give away $32 billion over the coming years. And um, he's the 20th richest person. Um, with $30.5 billion, so he's going to keep a little for himself. <laughs> um, but uh, he made the announcement today it would be used for work in areas including inter- intercultural understanding, disease eradication, providing power to remote areas, building orphan, orphan, orphanage, you can say it, Al, <laughs> and schools, disaster relief, and empowering women. Yeah, okay. But he's doing this a lot along with the lines with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett after they announced, uh, you know, combining all their money together. Uh, They are worth about $151 billion combined. And uh, they have, of course, the Gates Foundation in which there's more than $46 billion. So, you know, you have all these billions of dollars going into these funds, uh, changing the world uh, for tolerance, acceptance, equality. And uh, certainly we know that doesn't all work out very well. So Well, we have to tolerate the government. We no, have to tolerate. Tolerance. Because where well, the, that's what made America great. So you have people, you have these young people like the, the, the Zuckerbergs with his billions of dollars, all these youths that, that made just billions of dollars on their little apps and little programs that really don't do anything but destroy family. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just... Interesting boggles the mind. Boggles the mind. You live in interesting times, the old Chinese curse. We are definitely in interesting times. Let's take a break for some commercials. Melody and I will be right back on Financial Survival. Please stay tuned.
Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. with Melody Cedarstrom Financial Survival. What's next, Melody? Oh, whatever, Al. It just gets frustrating. Here we are going into July 4th, and we have all these things that are going on, and General Obama gets 50% rating. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, really? It's yeah. complete insanity everywhere. Well, you know, it's like Destroying motion flags. It's like motion pictures where you have sequels. You got to have better special effects in the number two picture than you did in the number one. And the number three has got to even be better if you want to make any more money. Um, The public needs, you know, you got to have a new and even more impressive act every time you come to town because the public is waiting for it. They can't. So Obama, he's got a, I don't know. They've at least got to create the illusion that he's uh Oh, it's just everything. It's just everything, Al. I mean, just, you know, you read, look at some of these headlines and you read the, I mean, here Hillary has more of an email mess. And, and she is, uh, yeah, and they still think she's going to be the nominee. I mean, it's like, really? Yeah, it's just, you well, just get worn work. out with the corruption. You just get worn out with. Uh, but you see a couple of glimmers. Trump loses business deals over comments about Mexico or Mexicans, but gains in the polls. Donald Trump made some comments recently about illegal aliens coming in from Mexico, and he described them as rapists and criminals and blah, blah, blah. But not all of them. 
Well, I understand, but nevertheless... And he says there's some good ones in there, too. Well, my point is, he he will lose the illegal alien vote. That's gone. However many votes he thought he was going to get for illegal aliens, that's gone. Jeb Bush, on the other hand, he sat back and said, we speak Spanish around the home almost all the time. And uh, he's going to be getting the illegal alien vote, which is just evidence that Bush is an idiot. And Trump, despite the headlines, uh, it points out he's gaining in the polls. He's jumped 9% since he announced that he was running for office, and he's now second. He's got 12% in the polls as compared to Jeb Bush, who has 19%. Um, you know, Trump jumped from 3% to 12% just since he announced that he was going to run. And I think that's, what, a week? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you know, I mean, he's got he, he's got momentum. Um, we'll watch and see how this goes. But Trump has the <laughs> Trump has the right solution. While Jeb Bush is out trying to kiss everybody's backside, Trump is saying, "Look, here's the way it is." And uh, I don't know. So we see glimmers of you know glimmers of hope. It's confusing, frustrating, bizarre, incredible. Too fantastic to believe a lot of it, and yet here we are. We have to deal with it. You know, it's like the business with Greece. We get tired of talking about Greece, but on the other hand, Greece can be instructive. You know, there are some lessons. It's like going to school. You didn't learn 2 plus 2 equals 4 the first time you heard it. You had to hear it again and again and again, and maybe you can, from that repetition, you wind up learning things. And sometimes it may be important lessons, even though we're tired of talking about it. Here's one example. Earlier today, July 1st, this is from Blooming Bloomberg video, uh, and Zipper signals he's ready to make a compromise. That's the headline. Earlier today, Greek Prime Minister Alexis Zipper has shown compromise to end a standoff over the nation's bailout by accepting creditors' proposals with some disagreements. Okay? Earlier today, he's ready to compromise. I'm looking at it and think, look, this is a done deal. You didn't make the payment. Just do it. And oh, no, no, no. It's, this is still a live issue. Um, but earlier today, he's ready to compromise. And about an hour ago, now two hours, really an hour before the program began, Here's a headline from Reuters. Greece's Zipras digs in against bailout. One hour ago, uh, now two hours ago, a defiant Prime Minister Alexis Zipras urged Greek on, Greeks on Wednesday to reject an international bailout deal, wrecking any prospect of repairing broken relationships with EU partners before a referendum on Sunday that may decide Greeks' future in Europe. Less than 24 hours after he wrote a conciliatory letter to the creditors asking for a new bailout that would uh, accept many of their terms, Zippers abruptly switched back into combative mode in a television address. Well, I don't know. You know, it's not like it's big news, but it's it's the kind of story that's that really does. You can you can discern things from looking at these two headlines. In the morning, he says, "Let's make fun. Let's, you know, let's make nice." And within, and within the same day, he says, "You know, y'all can, y'all can just go to go to the hot place." Um, it's evidence 
desperation, confusion. Nobody really knows what's going on. Nobody can keep their stories straight. How will it all work out? I don't know, but it's unstable, that's for sure. Here's another one from Greece. This is this is this just cracks me up. This is from the New York Times. Headline is Greece. Missing IMF payment is called effectively in default. Athens, Greece missed a critical debt payment to the International Monetary Fund. The fund said earlier uh, Wednesday, deepening a crisis that has haunted world leaders and financial markets over the past week. Greece is not technically in default. But missing the payment of 1.5 billion or about euros or about 1.7 billion dollars is yet another warning that the country will probably be unable to meet its other obligations in coming weeks. Greece hasn't met its obligations for five years. The creditors already took a haircut of 53% a couple of years ago. Greece was in default then, but because the creditors allegedly accepted that loss voluntarily it didn't count as a default greece defaulted three years ago all right now they defaulted again yesterday and now they're still playing around word games greece is not technically in default all right it's another warning the country will probably be unable to meet other obligations in coming weeks no not probably they don't stand a snowball's chance <laughs> Um, If they do, that might make the bank, one of the country's chief creditors, less willing to uh, continue emergency loans that have been popping up Greek banks for the past several months. We may have time to get to that before we get done here. The European Central Bank may not give any more money to Greek banks, and that's important for reasons we'll touch on in a minute. But by declaring Greece in arrears, they didn't say they're in default. They say they're in arrears. The IMF avoided, avoided using the term default. Credit ratings will uh, also will not consider Greece in default based on missing the IMF payment because the IMF is not considered a commercial lender. Also, we are now in July, which is, does not have an R in it, Melody. That's one of the reasons we're not going to consider that Greece is in default. Uh, what we're talking about here is that it doesn't matter, apparently, whether Greece ever actually pays its bills or never pays a dime. What counts are the words used to describe the Greek condition. No one is saying, coming right out and saying, you defaulted, you defaulted, you defaulted. Nobody's saying that. They're saying it's, it's technically a default. One of them says it's effectively a default. But nobody is saying it's a default. And it just cracks me up because I don't. Why won't someone just tell the truth? You know, it's one of the reasons why some people are going to vote for Trump. I get the impression that he's not going to mince words if he's elected. I might not like him in office. I don't know that I will. I kind of I think I, I think I might. I think I probably will. I might not. But I would at least respect the man. I mean, he just comes out and he doesn't pussyfoot around and he just says, "This is the problem." Now let's see if we can solve the problem. You know, we can't solve a problem. It's the key to any kind of problem you have is diagnosis. 
All right? Doctors don't get paid to take scalpels and cut holes in your body. They get paid to diagnose the problem so they know where to cut. The diagnosis is key. We're not going to get a diagnosis as long as people continue to play word games and quibble over whether Greece is effectively in default or actually in default or has defaulted or is technically in default or is in arrears or whatever. They're not paying their bills. They haven't paid them for three years. They're not going to. I know they paid some of their bills, but the big ones haven't been touched. So, word games, word games, word games. What's the significance of the European Central Bank, however, has continued to fund Greek banks. Even though they haven't cut a deal with the Greek government, they've continued to fund Greek banks, provide funds to Greek banks. Why do you suppose that is, Melody? You tell us, Al. Well, I don't know, but I'm going to guess that it's this. They're concerned that the Greeks are going to have a run on the banks when this deal breaks down, which is they've been funding. They've already had a run on the banks. I know that. But they've been funding the Greek banks for a month or more, even though it looked like the negotiations were going nowhere. It was a separate deal. Why? Because if there's a run on the banks, under fractional reserve banking, I've heard that in Europe the banks can go as much as 23 to 1 on the ratio of how much money they can keep in the bank and how much out of, in other words, out of every $23 that they deposit in the bank, the banks only have to hold one in reserve and they can lend the other 22. Now, that's a great formula and a necessary formula. Fractional reserve banking is a good thing because otherwise if you put money, you save money, you put it in the bank account, that money would be taken out of circulation. It's got to be loaned to keep it in circulation and keep the economy moving. If we just kept putting our money in the bank and effectively hoarding it there and and not lending it to anyone, um, the economy would die. Fractional reserve banking is a good and necessary concept, but when you have a 1 in 23 ratio, here in the United States, I think it's 1 in 10. They have to keep $1 in the bank for every 10 that are deposited. It means in the United States, if 10% of the people hit the bank at the same time and say, we want our money, the bank will probably be shown to be insolvent and be forced to close its doors. In Europe, I've heard that, I don't know what the fractional reserve ratio is, but I've heard it's 23 to 1. At least it can be. They can go that high. Operating on the assumption that the Greek banks are 23 to 1, it means that if one person out of 23 about 4.5% of the population, if they, if one person out of 23 went in and said, I want my money, then that 4.5% went at the same time. It would probably be enough to push the banks into insolvency. They'd have to close their doors. And while people might get their deposits back someday, they wouldn't have immediate access, that's for sure. I think that the reason that the European Central Bank has continued to subsidize the Greek banks is to put more money in the in the vault just in case there was a bank run which has now begun right and we'll see how big this bank run gets but have they put enough money in the vault where it takes more than one person out of 23 to put them in insolvency does it take one out of 10 does it take one out of five right as the percentages of people required to create a bank run as they increase the banks, 
becomes safer. Uh, the probability of a bank insolvency is diminished, and the system can continue, can continue to function. But if the banks start closing down because of bank runs, then they're trashed. I mean, then they've then then that'll really that's that's a big step downward. That would be a big step downward for the Greeks. So uh, that's the importance. That's the significance, to my mind, of. The European Central Bank continuing to fund Greek banks. And it's also evidence that the European Central Bank is not holding a grudge, per se. It's, it's even a kind of indication of a certain amount of goodwill between the European Central Bank and Greece. They may not be getting along with the current government. They may not ever get their money back. But at the same time, they're not just completely pulling the plug and say, die, die, you arrogant Greeks. They're still providing money to the banks to keep this system afloat. We'll watch and see how it unfolds. We may know, me know better by next uh, tomorrow. I mean, we may know a little bit more for sure. The Greek drama will continue. We're out of time. want to thank all of you for listening. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Uh, see you manana in the meantime. The good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank the producer. Bye-bye. I work all night, I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me.
or go to wakeupwell.org. That's wakeupwell.org to order Doc Mike's book, How to Practice Medicine Without a License. Be your own doctor for only $14.95 plus $2 postage and handling or call 708-488-8887. That's 708-488-8887. Order now. Chicago live and you on Friday the 28th of June 2013 the last show in June of 2013 this month but stay tuned we'll be here for another 6 months and another 400,000 dead Americans cuz we're almost at the halfway point right now okay In fact, in just uh by this time next week we'll be over 400,000 dead Americans. As of this morning, along with the chemtrails from our bad ass mayor and our celebration of the um uh Blackhawks winning the Stanley Cup, and conveniently there were no chemtrails in the sky today. No. There weren't anybody looking up there and seeing the poison raining down on a million gangsters lined up to congratulate the Blackhawks and Mike Binsky, the, the uh, trainer who uh, put them into the Stanley Cup Finals, and then they won it. But as of this morning, three hundred and ninety-three thousand eight hundred Americans are dead. Yeah. Real dead, pushing five hundred pounds of marble, every one of them. It's the first of the year. Twenty-two hundred yesterday, twenty-two hundred today, twenty-two hundred tomorrow, right through the end of the year. This genocide, folks. Make no mistake of it. And wait till Obama. Okay, well, it's already kicked in. We're having these died suddenly. Obituaries. I'll have those up here for you, from time to time. Yeah, that's Obamacare. Died suddenly. Had a bad habit. You know, like going to see doctors. And what a cascade of problems when they start drugging you. We're going to have some. Um, testimonials on a regular basis 
just like the lady that was up here uh, a few weeks ago that cured her cancer and got off of morphine. We're going to do a little bit more on morphine today, too. We're going to snoop around on some of these drugs. Um, centrally acting analgesics and so on, and opioid analgesics. Nine pages of adverse reactions. They're getting smart out there, folks. Believe me. they got to cover their fat asses from smart people like you and me that want to know why people are dying when they go to hospital. Yeah. Why are they why are they dying? Okay. I'll help you. Drugs. Lots of drugs. Okay. This is their thing. Get somebody to um administer them, especially morphine, and you can bend over and kiss your fat ass goodbye. And that's their plan. It's population control. So let's ring the bell for the 393,800 dead Americans as of this morning, since the first of the year. Now, we don't want to forget the 179 doctors since the first of the year that have blown their brains out. And Wyeth Corporation, okay, soaked up by Pfizer, is one of Pfizer's lackeys, Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, saw fit to make a grant to a photography company to film a DVD called Struggling in Silence of why doctors kill themselves. Now, they don't say why doctors commit suicide. No, it's why doctors kill themselves. There is a difference between suicide and killing yourself. The difference is microscopic, but when you put it in plain English, Maybe you need a drug so you don't want to kill yourself. I'm not so sure. But I got a bunch of the DVDs from the um, company that was uh, given this grant to educate medical students in medical school. Ask your doctor sometime what he's taken. Maybe that's how he survives to be 55 or 56 years old. Because they know what to take. But unfortunately, some of them take a little too much. Yeah. They overdose on drugs, blow their brains out, get their BMW going 120 miles an hour, plow into something. Oh, yeah. They don't mind kissing their ass goodbye because they've never cured anything. I'd be pretty depressed, too, if I went to school for something. How about a carpenter or a dentist or a, um, a, a music teacher or anybody goes to school? Take a look at a catalog for a college of all the careers that you can go into. 
And then when you get done with school, they tell you, sorry, you ain't going to do this. We, you, we soaked up all, soaked up all this money for your education from your parents and scholarships and loans and things like that, but you can't do anything with it. You're going to sit on your fat ass, okay, and vegetate for 20 or 30 years. That's all you got to do when you're a doctor. Just write prescriptions. Could it be any easier? <laughs> but then you got to read the obituaries, including your own. Here's the bell for those 179 clowns. Good riddance, or as my good buddy Dr. Wallach would say, dead doctors don't lie anymore. Nope. They're gone. They're real gone. Just like the almost 400,000 Americans that are gone. Look at the ratio. 400,000 to, say, 200. There's about you know, uh, 400 doctors a year that blow their brains out. We're halfway through the year now, the end of June. Got another six months left. We've got 179 of them. Okay. Yeah. That's the way it works, folks. Real easy. What's the ratio? you got some math majors out there. What's the ratio of 400,000 to 200? How many times is 200 going to 400,000? That'll help So when one doctor dies and 2,200 Americans are dead, and the next day two doctors are dead and 4,400 Americans are dead, you see the difference? It's over 2,000 to 1 hey, Mike. every day. Go. You got a question, but I wanted, to, I wanted to just let you know something that I was looking up just yesterday because you were talking about the debt for school. And then, you know, guess what? You don't get to do that. But uh, student, loan, student loan debts oh, are yeah. almost double what U.S. credit card debt is at $1 trillion in student loan debt. That's a lot of money. But you do have a question here uh, from, where is it? Uh, oh, from Jake KL78. Sounds like a new caller. Welcome, Jake. How can I help you? If someone does develop cancer, what is your opinion of the best treatment, and does the treatment depend on what kind of cancer? It is. Okay, Jake, excellent question. All cancers are fungus, and uh, all your antifungals are what's going to cure cancer. And since cancer is a scam in most cases, they can. They are now able to eyeball cancer. That if you have some type of a symptom, they don't need a um, biopsy. They don't need anything because I believe that these doctors don't even believe in cancer themselves. If a doctor gets cancer, like my brother did or brother-in-law did, 
He didn't get chemo and radiation. Um, Dr. Uh, Lorraine Day refused radiation and chemo. They're both alive. Now, why does everybody else have to get chemo and radiation if doctors don't do it? And maybe even doctors don't get cancer because of their lifestyle. Cancer is a lifestyle. You uh, create an acidic value in your body. It gets, quote, unquote, cancer. It's irregular cell growth. And it's a trillion-dollar medical ripoff around the world, multi-trillion-dollar ripoff around the world. Now, if there's 26 cultures out there that never had cancer, don't have a word for it, what are they doing? I'll help you what the Hunzas are doing. They have a lot of apricot trees that they cultivate and nurture, and they eat the apricot pits. And there's people here in the United States that have gone to jail because they were using apricot pits as laetrile to cure cancer. That's how powerful the American Cancer Society is and how they brainwash these doctors and oncologists who keep jacking people full of chemo and radiation. Yeah. So it's fungal. If your body doesn't get into a fungal situation, guess what? You can't get cancer. Otto Warburg found that out and got two Nobel Prizes for it in 1931. Cause, cure, and prevention of cancer. Then they tried to bury him, just like they tried to bury me, because I was talking about oxygen. I had to oil it. Oxygen Incentive Living Integrative Therapy. Oh, we can't have Doc talking about that. That's fraud. He hasn't done any research on that. He doesn't have any scientific proof that oxygen helps the body. Well, I'd like to put a, a nice tight noose around Lisa Madigan's neck and see how long she can survive without oxygen. She get real fungal real fast, which she is already, okay? And now she's backing off of her governor run. After I got my posters, I think she's probably seen one. And they say they're keeping an eye on Doc because he's got oxygen and ozone. Well, bring it on, you fat asses. Ten years with you clowns, and I'm still here. And I'm helping people every day. And we're going to have a guy on here that's triple bypass pretty soon. They did jack him with a stent because of his stressful situations in his life as a bus driver. But he's doing great now, starting his own garden, blah, 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 up here. And what's your best antifungal? Some type of colloidal silver is the best antifungal out there. And it, they say it changes stem cells, cures scarring. It's, there's many things that are antifungal. Okay? Your walnuts, your um, clove, they're antibacterial, antioxidants, your berries. All these wonderful things, Jake. Okay? 
I'm assuming that you're one of the 280 million Americans that doesn't have cancer and never going to get it because of your lifestyle. But there's about 20 million suckers out there, heavy smokers, um, sugar freaks, that just can't change their lifestyles. Or their doctors have no interest in them in changing their lifestyles. It's taught in medical school, but in the first weeks. So they forget it very, very promptly. Have a test on it, and then on to pharmacy. Ask your doctor sometime about how much pharmacy he's going to take in the 11 years it becomes, it, it comes or takes to become a doctor. 11 years, folks. And then they put this collar on them with one link in the chain. If they step off that middle line, give it a pull, get them back, get the fat ass sitting down writing prescriptions. You got somebody that's got a child that's in medical school? Ask them about the exams they're taking all the time to try to get to the next year. Ask Dr. Hurley. Go to uh, YouTube and put in Doc Mike Wittort, W-I-T-O-R-T, in the search bar, and listen to the 45 minutes of Dr. Hurley and about medical school. The interview we did with her at AmericanVoiceRadio.com. She'll tell you what's going on. Hey, Mike. Go. Got another, uh, well, question, a comment, and then a question. It's from Ralph1954. Welcome back, Ralph. How can I help you? Gee, Doc, I am wondering, is it really doctors are being brainwashed or just malicious endangerment, seeing as doctors don't take the same treatments they prescribe for non-doctors or non-family members? What do you think, Doc? What was that word, malicious what? Malicious malicious endangerment. Oh, endangerment. Okay. Um, There's another word, too. Uh, Let's see. It's... um... Not malicious endangerment. It's on my website. Let's see. We got um, uh, almost like a purposeful endangerment. I got it here. Anyway, it's on my website. But that the malicious endangerment's fine with me if you want to use that term. And that's basically what it is. Okay. Um, the, you can you can charge them with that. That that's a uh, on the formal complaint on my website at uh, services and forms, okay? Um, It's right there. It's a RICO violation of having somebody uh, basically guinea pig these drugs because the doctors are supposed to report adverse reactions, but they haven't got time for that. They'd They'd have to have a hardwire line to the FDA, and every day... You know, reporting adverse reactions. So if you get a book like uh, Drug Packs and Comparisons and you find out that there's nine pages of adverse reactions to narcotics and you're not too crazy about getting a couple of three pages of it, 
Um, it's uh, that's endangerment. Your doctor is endangering your health. Okay, and if you fill out that form, send it to your Cook County or Crook County or Kane County or Will County Sheriff. It's a formal complaint. Constructive fraud. This here's the words: wanton and reckless endangerment and unjust enrichment. This is what they are guilty of. And it's a formal complaint. The sheriff must act on it. Doesn't have to go through a police department, okay, where they say, well, we we didn't see the offender or so on, okay? We said, uh, we went, though we did go through a police department in Morris, Illinois, and they went to the doctor's office. I think I, we, well, it's, it's a complaint, you know? It's like uh, my buddy who who gave a ride home to a babysitter. And when she came home at 2 o'clock in the morning because he let her out of the car two blocks from the house and she ran over to her boyfriend's house and uh, had a little tryst with him, she accused my buddy of, uh, you know, like, uh, what do they call it? Not, like kidnapping. That she didn't, that he kept her from going home. But she went to the boyfriend's house. And my buddy wound up spending 30 days in jail. He finally got out when she fessed up that uh, it was not him. But this is what happened to me, too. You know, in 206, the attorney general uh, set up a uh, search warrant for my clinic. They couldn't find anything, so they threw me in jail for 44 days and and filled out the complaint form on me a week after I went to jail. But this is what's going on with Patriot Act and um, Homeland Security. But they can lock anybody up for nothing. You don't even have to be doing anything. You just disappear. Now, is that what our Constitution was set up for? I kind of doubt it. Now, if you want to talk to Doc Live, 800 800-596-8191. 800-596-8191. You got AmericanVoiceRadio.com, and this is the Wake Up Well show with Doc Mike Whitort, the number one holistic and curing radio program in the world that's caller-driven. And thank you for your calls. And get a pencil and a piece of paper. We're going to have some tips. And this evening, Melissa Roxanne, the voice of American Voice Radio. We'll keep things going after six o'clock here in Chicago. Do the time, do the math for the other time zones. It's great to be talking to you. We've got a phone bridge. It's got some commercials on it. And it's a little wacky, but if Frankie's working on a better one now for us for the live shows. But if you'd like to, if you have somebody that's uh, not got a computer, they can listen on their telephone. The regular phone rates, if, unless you've got long-distance calling, and that's free. It's got some ads. 
But if it hits the music ad, just hang up and call back in because that's got a loop on it. Here's the number, 704-772-7627. And the PIN is 10111. If you're in your pick-em-up truck with the 3030 in the back window, you can listen to it on your cell. Okay? Or on your home phone if you don't have a computer. Or Rick Radio. And I had some real nice compliments about Rick Radio lately. This guy is doing a great job of bringing down American Voice Radio from the satellite and broadcasting it over there. God bless all of you that are listening on Rick Radio. Hey, Mike. You can also, yeah, go right ahead, Frankie. Hey, you got another question here from uh, Bob Buzz 67 Welcome back, Bobby. How can I help you? I've heard you talk about turpentine for parasites and using pine needles. Can you yeah. go over how to prepare the pine needles and the protocol using them instead of regular turpentine? You bet. Now, we're bumping up against the halftime, so if uh, we go to the music, um, I'll finish it on the other side. But uh, just yesterday, um, I took some pine needles off of a pine tree, a nice green long leaf, long leaf or a long needle pine, the scotch pine, bent them in half and chewed on them. That's pure turpentine that comes out of there. Uh, a friend of mine had a long needle pine across the street from his home, and he had a uh, juicer, real sophisticated juicer, and we put the pine needles in syrup and squeezed the raw turpentine out of the needles. You can also put them in boiling water and create a turpentine tea, which you can drink, which also moves the parasites out of your body. Okay? And, um, uh, of course, the regular turpentine, we put one teaspoon of turpentine in a bottle of water, about 14 ounces of water, and three teaspoons of granulated sugar from the restaurant, your cane sugar, and shake it up real good. Drink one of those bottles every day for four days, and then, again, one every six months after that for the rest of your life. I'm getting ready within the next few days to drink my one bottle. My anniversaries are January and July. Okay, folks, thanks very much for all your questions. We're coming back with another half hour of hard-hitting health hints in a few minutes. you got the new, legendary, unstoppable, bulletproof Doc Mike show from Chicago, live, and you, on Friday, the 28th of June, 2013. Thank you so much for joining us this first half hour. We'll be back in a few minutes. Support our sponsors. Stay right where you are. And my China doll down in old Hong Kong Wait for my return Pretty Polynesian baby over the sea I remember the night When we walked in the sand of a Waikiki
provide Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. access to personalized counseling concerning suitable health care alternatives for you and your family for the rest of your life. IIR provides this for only a one-time cost of $49.95. That's $49.95. One-time cost for a lifetime membership in IIR. Call 708-488-8887. That's 708-488-8887. To get your lifetime membership in IIR and take advantage of the suitable health care alternatives you have a right to have access to, ask for Doc Mike at 708-488-8887 for your lifetime membership in IIR. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Place to bear. You're still there. 
Hey, folks, we're coming back at that Doc Mike is just moving too fast. Like my dad used to say when we'd go pheasant hunting, it's hard to hit a moving target. And I've moved five times in the last six years. Sitting down a little root here. Got another year on this lease, and I'm working on Plan B now. But you got the legendary, bulletproof, unstoppable Doc Mike show from Chicago live and you on Friday, the 28th of June, 2013. And our fat-ass mayor spraying us with chemtrails earlier this week. One of these days, he's going to wake up to me head kids, or his kids really are sick from breathing junk. The aluminum trioxide and the black mold and the dead red blood cells. And there was uh, yesterday, Thursday, I was working my bodyguard job and looked to the east when we were uh, driving south back from the detail. And there was this military jet flying straight up in the air. Like uh, the the center fountain at the Buckingham Fountain here in Chicago, it's straight up in the air. <clears throat> and I'm thinking to myself, if that's a um, uh, commercial flight, uh, where is it going? To the moon? You know? And then here comes a horizontal chemtrail and cost it just like the skull and bones. Earlier, as we were driving north, there were four jets that made a real nice coffin up there. Two horizontal, two vertical. Made a real nice box. It, the signs are in the skies. It's in Revelations. And his crap is really serious. And you can go to the Internet and see what's in that stuff. It's really crap. There's another site you can go to, too. Okay? I may have mentioned it. I'm going to mention it again. And from time to time, it's this one's really serious. Go to cellphonelies.com. All 42 million of you, cellphonelies.com. If that doesn't do it for getting your cell phone out of your ear, you're probably brain dead. And nothing's going to help you. Because this one's really serious. It's out of Australia. I don't own a cell phone, and I ain't getting one. Okay. There's some cell phone stuff through here. Let's see that. I got a printer. No, I guess that. But I have some more stuff here on cell phones. Okay. But, you know, your agreement says, and you better get a copy of it and read it over, if you get a brain tumor, it's your fault. It's not the cell phone company's fault. You're supposed to keep that cell phone away here 
Okay. Now, I'm going to be tying in, hopefully, with one of the best um, garment companies, women's garment com companies in the United States soon and giving my intimate instructional therapy presentation. This is what it is. IIT presents a comprehensive therapy focused on women's health care exclusively, designed for anyone interested in improving women's health. Participants will gain a better understanding of female pelvic anatomy, physiology, abnormal pathologic conditions, and dysfunctions of the pelvis. Learn how to effectively soften the surrounding structures of the female reproductive organs within the lower digestive cavity and pelvis. Discover how easily IIT can be integrated into your life. Conference dates, group, and individual sessions are available. Please visit www.wakeupwell.org or call Doc Mike at 708-488-8887. There's a little bio on this mailer also. Doc Mike is a reflexologist, myotherapist, life coach, and medical therapist. Since 1998, he has been involved in holistic practices with excellent success. In 2006, Doc Mike was awarded International Health Professional of the Year by the IBC in Cambridge, England. with the finest women's wellness clinics in the world. Any medical question that you have about drugs, about your lifestyle, about pH, about your immune system, about nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, deep breathing, stretching, water hydration, sugar, salt, fats, bring it on. You eat 78 fire and right, might be able to help you with that too. And what we're working with is freedom to cure. Absolute freedom to cure. That's you knowing everything, not just what your doctor was brainwashed with in medical school, which is nothing, or what he thinks might be wrong with you, because if you tell him what's wrong with you, you're wrong. You can't come up with an answer. That's what you're doing in his office. You're getting ready for some drugs. That's freedom to cure. We want to know everything about it, and then you as an adult, Make a decision of what you're going to do. Hey, Mike. Go. Got a question here from, uh, it's got a bunch of numbers and then Ben, so I guess its name's Ben. Okay, sounds like a new listener. 
Go ahead, Pat. Um, Let's see here, and uh, then you'll have a call after that. But uh, is there an effective natural treatment for baldness that you know of, Doc? Yes, there is. And I've got it right here because I'm working on it myself. Okay? Um, I think they call it hair loss, if I'm not mistaken. This is Maureen Keene. She's an MS and a CN. Okay? And we'll go to, uh, I believe they sent us to hair loss. Uh, yeah, hair loss. And we got hair growth tonics, hair growth cocktails. This is a juicing book, Juicing for Life, 175 to 179. And this is what I'm going to be doing very shortly. I've got the ingredients. Um, and I want to thank you, Ben. For that question, because I was, I'm going to try now. This will push me to try it, and uh, maybe we can um, cogitate on this. Okay. Now, there's reasons that, uh, especially drugs. This is where the word alopecia comes in. Alopecia is natural or abnormal baldness or thinning of the hair. It can appear in patches over over the entire head. Hair loss, listen to this, can result from the aging process that's lowering your antioxidants, lowering your oxygen capacity in your body, surgery, radiation, severe illness, drugs, endocrine disorders, that's stress, such as hypothyroidism. When you get stressed out, your adrenals pump and your thyroid drops sudden loss of weight, vitamin or mineral deficiency, especially iron, overconsumption of supplements such as vitamin A and niacin, poor diet, stress, that should have been right up front, certain forms of dermatitis, pregnancy, and last but not least, hereditary factors. There are over a dozen types of alopecia. Therefore, if you suddenly lose large amounts of hair, it may be appropriate to consult your physician. I wouldn't do that. To rule out any underlying medical problem that may be causing this loss. Be aware, though, it's normal to lose about 40 to 80 hairs per day. So if you lived 100... Um, you probably still have a pretty good head of hair, okay? General recommendations. Some people lose hair after an illness because of an accumulated uh, accumulation of oils, dead cells, and medication residues at the hair follicle. These residues can choke the hair, causing it to fall out, okay? Stimulating hair growth from within by the food you eat is even more important than what you put on your scalp and hair. Vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and other nutrients provide the raw materials from which hair is produced. Our American diet is too rich in foods that actually starve the hair, such as fat, sugar, and refined salts and, sh and foods. 
you may need to make certain dietary modifications to encourage your hair to grow. We got plenty of time here, so here's the, there's oh, also Mike, basic diet. You, oh. you you do have a caller on the line. Okay, let me uh, go right for the answer here, and then we'll uh, go to the caller. First of all, include plenty plenty of foods rich in sulfur containing amino acids L-15 and L-methine, which are found in animal products, are an especially rich source beans, and cabbage. Cut down on sweets. Include foods rich in B vitamins with special emphasis, emphasis on choline, inositol, and PABA. Make sure your diet contains ample essential fatty acids. Okay. B complex vitamins, right health gold here. Vitamin C improves circulation in the scalp. Vitamin E improves hair health and enhances hair growth. Beneficial juices, leafy green vegetables, the B complex, kale, parsley, green pepper, and broccoli, sources of C, spinach, asparagus, and carrot, source of vitamin E, alfalfa, helps and stimulate hair growth, ginger juice. This is what I got. I have the other things here. I'm using those two used traditionally to stimulate circulation to the scalp. How to make your ginger, they call it a ginger hopper. One quarter inch slice of ginger root, four to five carrots, greens removed, one half an apple seeded. Put it in a juicer or a blender, have a nice healthy head of hair. If you'd like to talk to me at length about this, call me at 708-488-8887. 708-488-8887. Eight, eight, seven. There's also a ginger juice tonic and a cayenne pepper tonic. I'll be talking about all of this at length after I do the um, ginger hopper. Okay, we've got a caller. Who's calling? Where are you calling from? Hi, it's Mary. I'm calling from New York State. Hey, um, I ran into one of my friends... One of my friends, well, actually, I don't know her that well. My daughter was friends with her, and she had a brain tumor, and they removed it. And when they did it, they um, injured um, her eyelid so that her one eye does not work. I mean, it still works, but, you know, the lid won't open and close naturally. And I wondered if there's anything you can do for a nerve damage like that. Yes, there is. Uh, Now, she doesn't really try to do it because her doctors, of course, aren't really encouraging that, apparently, but... Are you surprised? <laughs> yeah, no. you know, they, they've got all the answers and the non-answers, too. Just you, we screwed up your brain. Uh, we cut some nerves. So, you know, you've got a problem. Well, we can try. Let's try something, okay? Low vibration therapy. This is the vibration unit that I retail out of Chicago. You can also get them at uh, Walgreens a vibration unit or a massager, and yeah. put, the, put your fingers on the eye and put the vibration unit on the back of the fingers and watch the nerves and the tendons and the ligaments that move the eyelid improve very rapidly. There's also another, wow. technique, there's also another technique with a uh, Q-tip where you gently push the Q-tip around the eyeball, 
uh, towards the nose, under the eye, and above the eye, and then over towards the ear, around the eyeball, very, very gently as the uh, patient inhales, and when they exhale, you press gently with the Q-tip um, around the eyeball to release the tension and strengthen the um, muscles that operate the eyelid. I've had success mm -hmm. with that from time to time. Okay. Awesome. I figured there was something you would know of, but uh, she just, she's kind of like ruled it out, so I'll have to talk to my daughter and see if she can inspire her because she's Wonderful. gotten used to it, you know, and yeah. I'm surprised she can drive a car. She can drive a car with one eye. <laughs> I thought, how in the world do you do that with just uh, distance, you know? Yeah. Is she blind in that eye, or is it just the eyelid? It was open. She can. It's, it's starting to affect her vision from the fact that it's closed all the time. I think you know she yeah. just had an eye right. test yeah, and it hasn't not... gone on her. But um, if she, she, this is quite a few years now. I think she's been dealing with this and just letting it go. And I tried to talk to her some years ago about it, but she um, yeah. she wasn't open then either. So, been, not every muscle in the body, you know, in 1999, I went through myotherapy school, and we were trained on every muscle in the body. And then, of course, I enhanced many, many of these therapies myself with creativity and vibration therapy. And we're finding that, you know, all these non-curable syndromes are very, very curable. So thank you uh, for uh, reaching out to this individual. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go talk to her. She just lives down the street from me, and I'll um, tell her that you've been trained in this very thing, and she probably has never heard of you, you know. But we'll <laughs> make sure that she does. So. Well, thank you so much. We're going, on 40, we're going on 45 hits on the website, so somebody's heard about me. And we've got yeah, 42 million listeners twice a week, oh, including yeah. yourself. Okay. Yeah, thanks so much for the uh, help with my uh, tooth. Um, I, I, was, I wasn't taking the uh, peroxide full blast. Or I just skipped okay. it one night, and then I got a big swelling, and now I still have a little bit of numbness. It's better after garlic and different things, but I still have a little bit of numbness in my bottom um, gum, and I'm wondering, should I massage it with um, magnesium oil? That wouldn't hurt at all. Are you are you using the whole cloves also? I kind of cut back on it because you know if the swelling has gone down, but I can keep up with that. In fact, what I did is I took the four to six cloves and mixed it in with an apple, and you know take it down like an applesauce that way. Put a lot of cloves in one apple, and then are you talking about garlic garlic cloves? Garlic cloves or the whole cloves that you know you put in a ham? Uh, There's a the whole quote, yeah. Okay. Not so like kind of one of but, you know, one. Yeah. Just, the, they're the they're brown, all different the, sizes. Yeah, the little brown ones. Right? Uh, yeah, one were, some were organic, but they were all dried up, so I got some fresh ones that weren't organic and just peeled them off and stuck them in the blender, cut them in quarters or whatever, and threw them in the blender and mixed them up with an apple, about six, six of them, to eight per apple, and then um, took down two to three tablespoons at a time. So that's what I probably should continue doing, right? Now, a little water are you talking about garlic? Mary, are you talking yeah, about garlic cloves? 
No, yeah, I'm not talking about garlic. You can use you can use those, but I'm talking about the whole cloves. It's it's a little uh, brown bead about a, you know, a quarter of an inch long with a little bud on it that you use as a oh, spice. Oh, you're talking about yeah, that clove. Oh, okay. Would that be better? I've got the powdered that's, clove. That's the one you must you misunderstood me. I didn't. I was not talking about garlic cloves. That can't hurt you, but I was talking about the whole cloves, the, the spice. Oh, okay. those, Yeah, I think I have either. them. Put those in, or just stick them, them in right the tooth. By, yeah, just put them right by the tooth there, and they're antiseptic. By the gum. Right, okay. it's right between your cheek and gum. Okay, because I have some of those with clove, in, and it, it deadens the pain. Yeah. I quit doing it because I want to have the pain before going to bed, so I didn't realize that very clove oil that I have does deaden yeah, the pain when it gets bad. Yeah, clove oil. Yeah. That's, that's not garlic cloves. Huh? Those are, you know, the, the spice. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I use them all the time. Good. Thanks so much. Okay. Okay. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, folks, we got a couple minutes left. You want to Mike? talk about yo? You got another question here uh, from oh, Greg good. Greg O'Donno eight. Hey, how yep. can I help you? Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, I have a friend who isn't fat, but his abdomen looks swollen. I see a lot of people that look the same. What is that? It doesn't seem right. Any ideas? The stress syndrome. I up well. No, she goes slow. The ABC points and any of the other ones, and you'll normalize your cortisol biorhythm. This is also a dietary change. Anyone that would like to talk to me personally about. Now, uh, we're right at the end of the show here, so I want to tell you about uh, some uh, navigation points. The um, uh, Doc Mike Weight Loss Program that is particularly aimed at proper food juicing and or blending to figure out a way to normalize your dietary needs and reduce your stress levels of time. It's extremely important that we get this on a one-two punch of instruction and nutrition for a very, very healthy life from one. So uh, the, this is called ascites. It's an accumulation of fat and water in the stomach from um, processed foods. Anything in a box, a bottle, a bag, or a can will be virtually undigestible and go turn into fat. People that drink a lot of cola, eat a lot of candy, uh, deep fried foods can cause this. Your GMO foods cannot be digested and the pancreas is overtaxed and the body also surrounds its these uh, poor nutritional items with fat. Okay, we're at the end of the show. Uh, please call me anytime at 708-488-8887 for free consultations with Doc Mike. Okay, folks, we come to the end of the show. Last year in June, on Wednesday, the 28th of June, 
2013. You got the new legendary, unstoppable, bulletproof Doc Mike show from Chicago, live, and you. Thank you so much for joining us. Support our sponsors. Say a prayer for Doc Mike. You got AmericanVoiceRadio.com. All the truth you can handle and more. Nothing but the truth. We'll see you next Wednesday. Good day. Candles burned out long before. Your legend ever will. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.